Uh, hey, how's it going? Uh, when are you Fartknockers going to talk about that song about that poor old man? Uh, like, the song rocks, and it's cool that the guy gives you stuff, even though he's poor and he's old. But uh, it, it would be even cooler, like, if instead of Iron, he gives you Iron Maiden. Yeah. yeah. And instead of Rope, uh, he gives you, like, um, nachos. You know? Give us Iron Maiden. Give us nachos. Yeah. That would, that, that would rule. Uh, can you, like, stop singing? Uh, you suck. Shut up, Bahid! How many pages of notes do you have for Paro, man? Uh, I have... One, two, three... Three sentences. Three sentences? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Nope. Is, is that par for the course, or is that less or more than normal? It's much less than normal, but uh, I've thought about this song so much since it's been so long since we did the last one, and uh, I've just been thinking about this song quite a bit, so I feel like I've got everything in my head. And I figured you're going first, so I'm like, well, any historical details about the song, you're going to end up covering anyway, so <laughs> what's the damn point? I'm just going to be yeah. here to provide. So let me count my sentences here. Let me scroll up to the beginning of the song, because I have a document with all the songs in it. Okay. One, two, three, fourteen pages. Oh my gosh! Good so Lord. that's uh, yeah. I've also thought a lot about this song. <laughs> <laughs> Holy oh, crap! That says it all, doesn't it? Oh man. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Great Divide podcast, what should hopefully be the final installment of our Crossing Deep Dive, episode 85. We have one song left. How's it going? It's fine. Are you ready for this one? How are you, Tom? And I noticed you said, hopefully we'll be done. And we're still not sure, even though it's just one song left. Well, I was sure until off air, you said, I hope we can get through this today. Yeah, I hope so. You know, hope springs <laughs> eternal, but I really don't know. This is this is a heck of a song. Uh, I was if you look at the, the um, when we started doing this deep dive, this is the longest time it's taken for us to do uh, you know one album. It's stretching over half a year, <laughs> and a lot of that is oh, because man. we spend so much time researching between each episode and each song. And Pearl Man, like I told you before we started, is the song that I've done the most research for ever, and it's, it's the song I probably have the most notes on ever. So I'm glad we only have one song today. It's probably going to feel like five when we're done. Yeah, I'm telling you. There's no doubt about it. And I, as as we said before the show started, um, I've all my research is in my head, and all of yours is on paper and in your head. Yes. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but yeah, this is a gigantic song. And, and when we started doing this, we pretty much realized that we were going to have to devote pretty much an entire episode to Poro Man, especially considering that we really only got two songs an episode out pretty much on this entire series so but i'm looking <laughs> forward true. i'm looking forward to putting this to bed 
And I think it's good that this is our last deep dive because we just keep getting bigger and more bloated and more gigantic than ever on every successive deep dive we do. If we do, if we do end up doing Wonderland at some point, my prediction now <laughs> is that it will surpass even this deep dive, even with only four songs. <laughs> That's probably true. Well, I don't know where this would have ended. So yeah, it's uh, let's put this one to bed. So let's uh, let's do the bedtime story and see if we actually end up asleep at the end. All right. So here we go, Pearl Man. So we have the album closer, the final track, and uh, it happens to be one of the true big country epics. It, um, like we said a couple times, it's the longest song on the album. And I uh, started, you know, this is why I have so many notes, because everything was explored. We have said it was the longest song on the album. And then I started thinking, is this the longest album track ever? And it turns out that it is. And I just rifled through the nine album and what would be the longest song from each one of them. The closest contender would be We're Not in Kansas from, uh, from Buffalo Skinners. But that is a minute and a half shorter than Pearl Man. So really it stands alone in terms of being the longest album track. Then I started looking at singles or, or uh, non-album tracks where we have a song like The Crossing, which is close. It's 707 to Pearl Man 751. Christmas Island is 6.47, longest day 6.40. And a song that I would have expected to be as long, Can You Feel the Winter, is only 6.35. So it goes quite a bit down the list. So Pearl Man, I would say, is the longest studio track that Big Country has. And uh, this discussion will probably uh, mirror that somewhat. So, uh, yeah, where to begin? We have uh, Tony's quote from uh, 2006. Where he said, like inverts, Pearl Man is a track that set the expansive track template that was being developed at the time. Musically glorious, fab to play live. So yeah, he likes it, but we don't really glean much else from that quote. So uh, let's just start looking at this song and as it develops through the ages. And we have um, a couple of demo versions. This isn't a song that we had from the very early days, like we had some of these dating back to, to May 81. This shows up later in the game. And I think the earliest version we have is likely the one on Rarities 4. That's an early demo. I suspect it's a John Brent demo. I'm not 100% sure. People will correct me there. But it comes from those times. If it isn't John Brent, then it's demoed around the same time, which would be pre uh, Chris Thomas album sessions. So that's an early one. Not a super different uh, song structurally to what we have. Lyrically it's the same. It's it's finished. And uh, structurally it's more or less the same. The, the tempo was always something they had to modify uh, with Lily White. But more or less it uh, is 
close to what you would get structurally. And then, in June 1982, they went into the studio with Chris Thomas to do the album in ARR Studios in London. The songs they did there was Balcony, Angle Park, Harvest Home, Heart and Soul, Lost Patrol, Inward, Thousand Stars, and also instrumental versions of The Crossing, Angle Park, Heart and Soul, and Pearl Man. A lot of those Chris Thomas versions were included as bonus tracks on the 2012 2CD Deluxe Edition of The Crossing, but Pearl Man wasn't there. And I don't know if they opted to not include the instrumental tracks because none of the instrumental tracks were included on that one. But one year later, on the 30th anniversary double LP release, the entire second vinyl is dedicated to Chris Thomas mixes. And this is actually the closest we have ever been to receiving a standalone Chris Thomas album of The Crossing. It contains eight songs, which fills up an entire vinyl record. So that's actually super interesting to mention here. Side A of that vinyl, or technically it's side C, contains the four songs that were included on CD2 of the 2CD release from 2012, which is Thousand Star, Lost Patrol, Inverts, Close Action, all complete with vocals. Where side B of that, or technically side D on the whole LP, is the juicy stuff on this release. That is the instrumental versions of The Crossing, Angle Park, Heart and Soul, and Poroman. And these instrumental versions are not available anywhere else. So that actually makes this 30th anniversary 2LP release very special. So in case you don't have that one or you don't have a turntable, we'll play a little of that instrumental for you now.
Yeah, I really enjoyed these instrumentals. They're, they're very interesting little snapshots of that time period and what could have been with Chris Thomas. Indeed. We know that these sessions were stopped. They didn't finish it. At one point, they stopped them. So maybe this was stopped before they were able to add vocals to these songs, because clearly some of these were intended with vocals. Yeah, that's what I assume. I mean, typically when you record, vocals are the last thing you put on. So that's yeah. I, I assume they just stopped it before it got to that point. But they they, they yeah. did a lot of work with him. You can really see from these instrumentals, they, they did a lot with him before they stopped it. Yeah, they did. And it's very nice to have a Chris Thomas LP, which is what you really have with that second LP on that uh, set. So uh, we have one more glimpse of this song before the Lillevite uh, session start. And that is the John Peel radio session from February 1983. On that one, they played Close Action, Inverts, Thousand Stars, and Poro Man. And it's not very different to the versions we have already heard. It's lyrically identical, musically very similar, same overall arrangement. Uh, it's close to a live thing because the Peel thing was live in studio. And as usual, like all of these, they're played a little faster than the final album version. So Lily White slowed things down. Some things more drastically, other things just minorly. And this was not the most drastic of them. But um, yeah, so we have some glimpses of Poro Man in transit, really, as it's on the way to the actual crossing recording sessions. They don't really show a, a great sort of change. The, the song, when it was written and rehearsed and played, that's how it uh, more or less stayed. So I guess uh, it's more interesting now to look at the song background. And uh, I think just about all of us know the background to this song. We've all heard that uh, the word Poro Man is uh, a West African voodoo witch doctor. And it's well known that the song is inspired by a short story called Pollock and the Poro Man by H.G. Wells from 1895. And uh, we're going to talk about this story here. What do you expect from this deep dive? So if any of you ever wanted to read this story on your own, uh, enjoy it and... uh, not have it spoiled by someone. This is your spoiler warning. We're going to talk about this. Spoiler alert! <laughs> and Indeed. We're going to dissect and slice and dice. You're going to get Pollock and the Poor Man, the expurgated version. <laughs> and and let's, let me say, too, that really quickly, there's, there's a version that I posted on our page, which was a BBC radio ad- adaptation. I would yeah. suggest steering clear of that. If it, it's inter- it's interesting to listen to after you've read the short story, but it's so different from the short story. These radio adaptations would often change so many things about the stories. I mean, I mean the the germ the germ of the story is still the same and and the basic plot and those types of things. But I was surprised at how much that radio adaptation changed things. So go back yeah. to the source. It only takes about twenty minutes to read. It's a quick read. Yeah, fifteen twenty minutes. That's. That's how much time I spent as a non-native speaker. So I expect all the natives to read it in five. So <laughs> it, it is a short story. It, it doesn't take tons of time. And, and uh, I will uh, speak more about my own experiences. And I'll even get into that uh, radio play a little bit. But uh, yeah, H.G. Um, Wells, one of those names that didn't need to be mentioned. But I guess these days, most names need to be mentioned because there are so many names and they all drown out. Uh, Wells is considered one of really the fathers of science fiction storytelling, along with Jules Verne. And I'm sure that we have all either read one of his books or seen a movie based on one of his books, like The Time Machine or War of the Worlds or The Invisible Man, The Island of Dr. Maru and Shapes of Things to Come, and of course, Pollock and the Poro Man. 
So, like I mentioned, it comes from 1895. It was published as a standalone story, later collected in the book The Platner Story and Others, which is where you will find this story today if you want to purchase a hard copy containing it. That book has uh, 17 short stories by A.G. Wells. But it's also freely available online, and it's been posted on the Great Divide Facebook group many times. But a quick internet search will take you to it. It's likely your first hit if you just search for Pollock and the Poor Man, A.G. Wells. And uh, like we said, it's a quick read. And as it turns out, it's a very good read. And I went for years without reading it because, uh, well, it, I didn't have it. Internet wasn't as uh, juicy as it is now. Now you can find anything on the internet. Yeah. So um, I think within the last 10 years somewhere, I, I've read it, which is late sort of in big country fandom. Yeah, same here. And, and I, think, I think it's really important that, that this story be read when you really want to get to the heart of this song. So yeah. I'm glad you're talking about it. Yeah, we kind of need to because it's so uh, intertwined with it. But yeah, as, as it turns out, an incredibly good read. I found the story to be intense. And if I'm going to sum it up in one word, it would actually be gripping. I, I found myself just captivated by it because the story, as we'll find out when we talk more about it, it starts pretty suddenly. And I can say it now, it starts really when he first meets the poor man. The moment he meets him is the moment it starts. And that's, it's not a natural place to start the story, apart from the perspective of that's when they met, that's when they locked together in dramatic circumstances. And uh, the story ends when uh, the lives end, basically. And that's, uh, that's really what it is. So it starts from that get-go. So, of course, it starts in a highly dramatic manner. And then there's an unease, a tension that builds up as a story, as you go through the story. And I was gripped by it. I really thought the narrative was solid. I expected the language to be kind of, quote-unquote, old-fashioned. But I didn't really have a problem with that. It doesn't really get in the way of the reading experience. It added, if anything, to the sense of when it is from and when the story is set. I thought it was perfect. So, uh, so, yeah, all you guys who have English as a mother tongue, you definitely should manage if I managed. So I, I think it's a very exciting story. Great ebb and flow. Great uh, as far as building tension and creating small pockets of hope in the story only to snatch them away again. It is gripping. It also has some commentary on race relations, uh, which I thought, thought was really interesting for something written in 1895. I mean, I know that's post-Civil War here in America, but... Uh, yeah, uh, th- there are a few lines in there that that, uh, that speak to racism and that kind of thing. So it's, it's, it's interesting from that perspective as well. Yeah, definitely. There, there's all kinds of things in it. It's a product of its time, uh, just like all stories that are popular and from those time that contains racist slang. Let, let's, let's call it what it is. Well, I was, I was speaking too of that, like a line that, that sort of criticizes it because there's a line in there that says um, – uh, you're you're one of those infernal fools who think a black man isn't a human being. Uh, a guy says to someone else, and I, I I just thought lines like that were very interesting coming from that time period. Yeah, right. Pollock and the Poro Man. The backdrop of this story is that this is a British expedition on Africa's west coast. The expedition is led by Waterhouse, and Pollock is a member of the expedition who was taken in to be part of it, to get away from his troubles in England, which we learn more about as the story progress. And we learn over the course of the story that Pollock isn't a very sympathetic man, and he keeps getting into trouble with the natives, and that's where most of the racist slur comes, courtesy of Pollock. 
And the Waterhouse describes him at one point as someone who looks down on the Africans. And the examples given basically shows that, yeah, he's a racist and he keeps getting into scrapes with the natives. He's disrespectful and even hateful to them and uh, desecrated one of their idols by writing his name on it. It's mentioned explicitly. So, yeah, not very sympathetic. And the story is written in a way that some things are made immediately clear, whereas other things become clear in hindsight. And the beginning tells us where that story takes place at that point, a swampy village on the Lagoon River behind the Turner Peninsula. Very specific. I actually looked up in a map of Sierra Leone where, where this takes place to see if I could find it, but it's, uh, the map wasn't that specific, or maybe a couple places were made up to just fit it in there. But uh, the story really starts, um, it, it tells us that the women of that country are famous for their good looks. And the next thing we know is that the Poro man stabs a woman straight through her heart and barely missed Pollock in a quick follow-up stab. That's how really the story begins. His aim may have been true, but Pollock is able to parry that stab with his revolver and fire back. So that's a very dramatic start to the story. It begins in the middle of a violent act. It starts at that point, and I believe that is because, like I said, that's the time, the exact time, when Pollock has his first encounter with the Poro man. There seems to be very little warning to the poor man's appearance. He takes Pollock by surprise. He takes the woman by surprise. He has suddenly emerged on the scene and tries to stab them both. So clearly Pollock and the woman were physically close to each other since he could stab them both in the same sort of two swift swings. He had a good chance of taking them out. But as we may suspect and learn later, Pollock was either about to be intimate with this woman or had been. Details beyond that are fizzy. Nothing is really said. We learn enough about his character that he may or may not even have forced himself upon this woman. Uh, but crucially, what we learn later is that she was the poorer man's woman, which explains his aggression. And you can ask, why did he kill the woman? That, that may seem extreme. And you may think his anger would primarily be directed at Pollock. There's two reasons. It, it can only be one of two reasons, really, where one of them is you could imagine due to some local belief or rule or superstition, that the woman would be seen as tainted by Pollock. And whether she was willing or unwilling may not even matter. Just according to those beliefs or superstitions, death was the penalty or outcome or whatever due to those local customs. The other theory is that the woman was not forced by Pollock, but seduced by him or even going along with his advances as a willing participant upon which the poor man would have noticed and been angered and wanted to take his revenge on both of them. One or two. But uh, that's, that's the outcome, really. All of this is speculation. And in some way, it's really also irrelevant to the story and irrelevant to what happens next. So going back to the action in the hut, and I know we spend a lot of time on this because this is really what... It lays the premise for everything that happens later. Uh, I mentioned that after parrying the Poromans' stab, Pollock fires back. And that first shot hits the Poroman in his hand. And the second shot uh, hits a window, knocks a window out of the wall. So the poor man stands stooped in the doorway, looking back at Pollock under his arm in an angle that makes his head appear like it dangles upside down, inverted in the sunlight, and then he was gone. That would be the last glimpse he ever caught of the poor man, that inverted face looking back at him at that twisted angle. And that is a vision that would come back to haunt him. And it has a crucial part of really the entire rest of the story. So just uh, meanwhile, 
outside of the hut. Things have gone quiet. A group of the expedition's carriers are standing outside a group of huts uh, that the expedition occupies, looking over to see what the hell are these shots about, what's going on. But that's all you can see. The poor man is nowhere to be seen. You never see him again. And um, I guess this is a good point to bring up the, the radio dramatization, because this is the, one of the biggest differences they, they changed. It's really the uh, lead up to how Pollock angered the poor man. There was no woman in the radio story. It was changed. Before I continue, let me mention that these radio dramatization was part of the Escape series. They were produced in America. They aired on CBS from July 1947 to September 1954. So that was like 50 years after the story was written. And Escape was radio's leading anthology series of high-adventure radio dramas. And they had a radio spot that would go. I'm going to try my, my best American voice here. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape. <laughs> that, was, that was your best, huh? <laughs> well, my best piss take, maybe. But the interesting uh, thing about escape was that they did both original stories and adaptations, and many of their story premise would involve a protagonist in dire life or death straits. Uh, so the, this story would fit very well into that. And the series would frequently feature science fiction and supernatural tales. And they made a lot of stuff. They made 228 episodes. Because I have a list of episodes that last that long. So most of these have survived in good condition. And many of them can even be found on YouTube. And uh, as Tom said, Pollock and the Poroman is one of them that you can find there. Uh, his advice is to steer clear. Well, I, I say steer clear until you read the actual story. Absolutely. And then definitely check it out because it's interesting. But I actually listened to the radio ad adaptation. Um, I think I read the story years ago, but I'd forgotten most of it. So I, I listened to the radio adaptation first, and then I went back to read the story, and then I was struck by how much it was, how different it was. Yeah, that, and that's absolutely true. What we can also say, I don't know if this was due to an experience that they had to change so much, because this was a very early story for them. It was produced very early on in the run. It was episode 12 out of the 228, so originally transmitted on the 29th of October, 1947. Worried about the United Nations? Anxious about those bills piling up? Want to get away from it all? CBS offers you Escape. You are the victim of a native witch doctor pursued from the west coast of Africa to the west end of London by the grinning face of a dead man. You are under the curse of a poorer man. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, and carefully plotted to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to the dark lowlands of West Africa and the mind of a man who scoffed at native magic. As H.G. Wells paints it in his gripping story, Pollock and the Pora Man. 
considerable time in Africa, but I have given little credence to the many superstitions of the natives there. Voodoo curses, weird incantations of witch doctors and the like, had always seemed a pretty silly business to me. But that was before the affair of Pollock and the Pora Man. And what Escape did, and what they changed and uh, when they dramatized Pollock and the Pora Man, was to change the aspect of Pollock's interaction with the African woman. In the radio version, Pollock stole a wooden statue. Yeah. So this was not just a theft, it was sacrilege, because it was a sacred item. So he got into a scrape with a native over this theft who saw him, and the native ended up dead. But this is told in hindsight. You don't get a dramatization of the murder of a native. And this all leads up to the poor man appearing the next night, knife in hand, to take revenge. And from there on out, at least the the rest of the premise is the same. And the last thing he sees of the poor man is that head in that inverted angle upside down with that, that frown. So going back to the original short story, Pollock has to go back to Waterhouse and let him know what has happened. And he does so begrudgingly, knowing that Waterhouse will scold him for his action, again, as he often did for other things. And that is exactly what happens. But there is an added seriousness about having had a run-in with a Poro man. So Waterhouse goes on to say that the Poro belief is so strong that it rules the country. It's all of its laws, basically. It is the religion, the constitution, its medicine, its magic. It's all derived from the Poro belief. So the Poro man basically appoints the chiefs of the village. And Waterhouse goes on to say that the Inquisition, at best, couldn't hold a candle to those chaps, which I thought was an excellent uh, line. So, so the picture that is drawn is that this is much bigger than just an unfortunate encounter in a hut, that this can actually have serious ramifications, not just to Pollock. Waterhouse fears that the Poroman will now set the chief of the local village onto them, so the expedition also will need to leave in a hurry and move on, move away from here. So in the end, the sum of every scandal and issue caused by Pollock up until now, plus the threat of being caught up in a political revenge, leads to Waterhouse sending Pollock home. He can't be part of the expedition any longer, but Pollock is happy to go. He does not uh, want to be there, he can't wait to get out of there, and he wants to get back to civilization. And he wants to leave right away, he's happy to just take a canoe and go downriver to the bigger cities and get out. But Waterhouse does not want him to travel alone. He knows that Pollock will not get far, because he does not think Pollock understands the danger he is facing. So the expedition spends most of the next day breaking camp, getting ready to leave in the morning, and Pollock lays low. After an attack, actually, a clay bullet is shot at him from the jungle, it just whistled past his head, and there's no sight of the assailant. The camp and the surrounding area, eerily quiet, as if something was brewing somewhere, and the entire area was holding its breath. And that night, Pollock has the first of what would be an ongoing series of uncomfortable dreams. He would dream of the poor man's face, just as he saw him for the last time, upside down, looking up from under his arm. And that image, for some reason, stuck with him. So the next morning, they all broke camp, loaded up the canoes, getting ready to leave. And as they did this, a barbed arrow would fly out of the jungle, hit the ground close to Pollock's foot. But just like last time, just that single arrow, no attacker was found and nothing else happened. It was almost like they let him know they were watching, they were ready to do their revenge, but uh, playing with him. And uh, so they go down river, they paddle down the river and make it to Sulaima, where Pollock has to wait for five days before he can get further transport onwards to Freetown. Freetown is the capital of Sierra Leone, 
and a big coastal town where he could get uh, transportation back to Europe and back to London. So Waterhouse and the expedition move on, leaving uh, Pollock to wait there for five days. And meanwhile, Pollock gets friendly with Pereira, who is described as the only resident white trader there. And uh, he spends time with him. The first two days are quiet, but on the second evening, he is attacked again. This time, he actually gets a flesh wound in his shoulder from a lump of filed iron. And it came from a long shot. And uh, the story describes it as the missile having nearly spent its force when it hit him. But it conveyed the message. He is still not forgotten. And the poor man or his followers or both had followed him. They knew where he was and they were still out there. The poor man was still wanting and waiting to get revenge. And Pereira knew a little bit more of the local customs. So he asked about what happened. And uh, when he heard of all that had happened, he would add that from what he knew, he felt that the poor man did not want to kill Pollock, at least not yet. He had heard that they wanted to scare and worry a man with their spells and their mystic influences and with narrow misses, just like the clay shot, the arrow, and now the lump of filed iron. And add to that things like rheumatic pains, which uh, Pollock has started to feel a stiffness in his limbs, and all the bad dreams. The poor man wanted to worry a man so much that he would become sick of life, a form of torture almost. They wanted him to, uh, to suffer, like death would be too uh, merciful, it would be too quick. And when Pollock said he nearly stepped on a snake when he stepped out of his hammock that morning, Pereira would nod and say, yeah, the poor man would sometimes send snake towards their victims. And they would send swarms of red ants too if they were nearby. And uh, after telling all that, of course, Pereira would add, yeah, of course, this is just uh, talk. It's just local superstition. Don't worry about it. But then he would add, I wonder what he'll be up to next. So it's kind of like once you're down there, you can't quite escape it. Even if you say you don't quite believe in this stuff, it's still there. It's still being uh, handled by followers or by the poor man himself. So the next afternoon, then we'll find out what he's up to next. Pollock would run by his uh, sleeping area and find actual snakes in his hammock, a lot of them. He would see an extraordinary increase in the number of red ants that swarm over the place. And this leads him to approach a Mendo assassin, whom he tasked with taking out the Poro man. And later that evening, as Pollock and Pereira were playing cards, that Mendy assassin comes through the door, carrying something in a blood-soaked piece of cloth. And before Pollock could stop him, he threw the contents up on the table. He had managed to take him out. And he had the head of the poor man with him. It rolled over the table. It landed in a corner where it came to rest upside down, glaring at Pollock in the exact same position that had hounded him since the original encounter in the hut. And he felt something snap in his brain as he looked at it. Pereira was horrified that he had not killed the poor man himself claiming that the only way to get rid of a poor man's curse was to take him out personally or ask him to take the curse off, one or two. And none of these conditions applied. So Pollock just kicked the head out of the hut and it ended up lying outside in the same position, same steering position as before. So he buried it, but overnight the dog brought it back in. So it was lying there waiting for him when he woke up. After a night with yet more nightmares, stronger than before, he threw it in the ocean, but it actually washed up on the shore and was brought back to them later that day by an Arab who wanted to sell it to them as a curiosity. It ended up coming back to him all the time. He lit a bonfire through the night to burn the head. 
And when morning came and he heard the horn of the steamer that would bring him to Freetown, he felt an intense relief just leaving Sulaima behind. So he travels by ship. And this is to Freetown. This is to go back to Europe. He's finally ready to leave all this Pollock stuff behind. As they left, the captain of the steamer came and leant over the rail beside him, wishing him a good evening. And as they talked, he told him that he had picked up a piece of Curiosa before they left. And they wanted to show it to him. And they go to his cabin. And of course, what could it be but the pickled head of the poor man? <laughs> Whatever he did, he couldn't escape it. It would float upside down in the same position in that jar. Scarred from burns, but not burned up. So at this point, Pollock freaks out. But through some great relief, he manages to compose himself, realizing that causing people around him to question his sanity will not help. But for that entire trip... He started feeling like the ship was made of glass, like the the head would be staring directly at him from the cabin beneath his feet, no matter where he was on the boat. And the boat trip would be far worse than the time he had at Sulaima. The nightmares are worse. The visions of the head would always be with him. And, uh, and that was that. He changed ship at Bathurst, but the dreams and the ache in his bones remained. And at Tenerife, he transferred to a cape liner, but the visions of the head followed. So he would do whatever he could to take his mind off it. He would gamble, play chess, read books, do whatever he could. But whenever a round, dark shadow entered his range, he would look at it and he would see the head. So at this point, during this journey, his senses start to fail him. And uh, the vision is the first that failed him. When anything enters his vision that fits that shape, it is the head. It's always the head. No matter where he looks, it is the head. And he knows this is all in his head, and he can still focus himself and see, okay, it, 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 he knows it's something else. But this increasingly becomes so that all the everyday stuff, the ship, other passengers, the sea, they're all just part of some sort of uh, phantasmagoria that, that hangs there, scarcely veiling it between himself and a horrible real world, the world of the poor man. After much struggling in silence with his own imagination, Pollock eventually reaches England. And he reaches his home in London. And uh, in not too long, he goes to transact some business with the manager in a private room. And all the while, the head hangs like an ornament under the black marble mantle. And uh, this is more than seeing it now. Now his hearing has failed him. The head is dripping blood, and he can hear the drops land coloring the fender underneath red. The manager sees his stare and comments on what a pretty fern it is hanging there. So um, he knows something is wrong. And this is the first time Pollock asks for help, as um, he wonders if the manager can recommend what he calls a physician for mind troubles, stating that he was having some hallucinations after his journeys. So he gets an address to a doctor and proceeds to go to that doctor. But he has an accident en route. Some kids are playing with a ball in the street. Of course, to him. This is an inverted Puroman head that is coming bouncing down the road like a rubber ball. And uh, he tries to evade it, he tries to kick it away, but he was hit by the pole of an omnibus and knocked out. That's one example of a word I had to look up. This is an old uh, horse and carriage that was called omnibus. And these days you see it more in omnibus editions and collections in book. But he was knocked down by that and uh, quite severely. So he was fished out from among the horses who was pulling the carriage and woke up later in care of the physician he was seeking as they had found his address on the note. He was en route there. 
and he found, when he woke up, that three of his fingers had been crushed by the hooves of a horse. These were the same three fingers that he had injured with his first shot on the poro man back in the hut where the story started. So things are coming full circle, and uh, the extent of the revenge, it all, it all points the same direction. So it turns out at this point that he had been out for some days, and they had, uh, they had been restful, courtesy of some chloroform that the doctor had administered to keep him calm. And he noticed this. This had been days where he didn't have nightmares, but as he got out of it, the old nightmares and visions would immediately come back. And this is when he starts having dark thoughts. This is the first time he thinks uh, something like, if my skull had been smashed instead of my fingers, it might have been gone altogether. Like, uh, it would have been better to not be here, because at this point, it's been a long time of haunted by visions, haunted by dreams, haunted by pains, and haunted of continual reminders of, of the poor man. And even in London, it doesn't escape him. So he's now getting early thoughts of, uh, of ending it all, and that there is only one way out of this madness and torture that the, the situation is given him. But he does manage to have talks with the physician about his uh, mind trouble. He knows he needs some sort of intervention to be saved. And he mentions to the doctor that he witnessed a decapitation in the home and was hunted by one of the heads. He does not go into details. So the doctor first asks about his religious training and suggests faith healing, like traveling to Lourdes which has a well-known spring that is said to have healing effects if you drink its water and bathe in it. But Pollock is no religious man. He knows there, this is not anything for him. So the doctor then suggests healthy climate changes. And he tells Pollock to go in search of stimulating air, like uh, Scotland, Norway, or the Alps. Uh, he suggests uh, physical activity. He suggests improving his physical health. And the story says, or indicates, because now it becomes more sweeping. It doesn't follow him on all his the things he do, but he takes his doctor advice as soon as his fingers are healed. It doesn't mention particularly that he goes to any of these places that were suggested to him, but he tried activities. We see him also playing football, where the ball now has a permanent appearance of the poor man's head, leading him to kick it rather maniacally or recoil in terror when it comes flying towards him. So he was not a good footballer. And the hallucinations would grow, with the head now saying things to him as well. And he would curse at it, he would defy it, he would start to address it, even in the presence of other people. So uh, this is the point where this madness or this curse cannot be hidden anymore. And he feels the growing suspicion in the eyes of people around him. And it doesn't help that he's never been popular, going back to the discreditable stories that led him to leave England for the African expedition to begin with. He, he went on that to, to sort himself out, to get away from it all as a new start. But it didn't work. He came back, and now he came back with erratic behavior on top of it all. So he became more or less a recluse. And this takes us to the end of the story. The end comes Christmas morning. He had worse dreams than ever, if that is even possible, given some of the dreams he has been having up to this point. He awoke to find the bronze jar that has stood on the bedside table overnight now looked like the head, upside down with that familiar grin staring at him in that particular way. He knew it was a bronze jar, but it looked, sounded, it smelled like the head. And after a long time of hesitation, he reached out and touched it and found that his last sense had now also betrayed him. Now it felt like the head. So uh, the hallucination was complete. Now the story says that his final sense had betrayed him. It, it hasn't said if he tried to taste it, I think that's really beside the point. Um, the story ends with him sitting in bed and 
Now he is filled with the ultimate bitterness of despair. So he grabs a razor blade from the door, sits there quietly for a while, reflecting, thinking back on his life. And the story does briefly mention his early years and the years of leading a vicious and selfish life, how everything changed during his encounter with the Poro Man. And um, the story sweeps through all that had happened since. He then feels for his neck artery and takes his own life with the razor blade. And that is the brutal, honest end of the story. The interesting thing is something that happens right before the end. He is reflecting on the fact that the head is a hallucination. He knows that it is. And for a moment there, he snatched at hope. And that's when he ends it all. The feeling he has when he takes his life is not despair. It is not depression. It is hope. Maybe he realized that he still has his sanity, his reasoning, that tells him that all these things he sees really can't be what they appear, that the senses are betraying him, but he still has his sanity. And then he senses a way to get out of this influence and feel it's better than the alternative. So hope. Of course, this is Pollock's own perspective. This is what he is driven to after a long time of mental torture, and maybe lesser minds would have cracked a long time before he did. But the outcome is nonetheless black. It seemed the only escape that was left to him. So that is probably a a longer summary time-wise than it takes to actually read the story. (laughs) You you just deep-dived a short story. Do you realize that? Yeah, it will uh, all be uh, run back towards the song. And going this detail means I can reference things better. But uh, the story has a narrative, completely from the point of view of Pollock, from beginning to end, which is interesting how that narrative also changes as he gets further and further tangled up in uh, really the revenge. This is a revenge story, really. So uh, with the story over, Pollock is dead, the Poro Man is dead. A universe that would be interesting to read more about, more about these Poro Men and, and how they operate, but uh, that's beside the point. There's a couple of trivia things we could uh, mention before we start on the song as such, where one is that when Big Country came back in 2010-11 with Mike Peters, Mike would read an excerpt of this short story before the band played the song. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to talk about this. Yes, and that's uh, there's a lot of things to say about his choice of section from this story. I will read what he read first, and then I'll put it, place it where it belongs in the story. I will actually play a clip, so I don't need to read it. But uh, what Mike read was... To come here and sing his songs in his hometown is... Uh... Well, you should have seen me in the dressing room before we came out. That's all I can say. (laughs) Play it, big man. But I've been asking the guys so many questions, you know, traveling around with them and asking about a band I loved and a person that I loved dearly as well. It's an incredible thing. And uh, I was asking about this next song and the origins of it. And uh, Bruce here told me it came from a book that they'd read together when they were young. And, it's, uh, and I'd like to read something from it because I think it might say, and I hope it says something about the Stuart that we all loved. And it's, uh, it's from a book written by H.G. Wells, which was published in 1895. And it's a, uh, a short story called Pollock and the Porro Man. And it goes like this. Belief in Poro malignity and Poro magic had been in the air. His sense of Poro had been vast, 
pervading, threatening, dreadful. Now manifestly, the domain of Poro was only a little place, a little black band between the sea and the blue cloudy uplands. Goodbye, Poro, shouted Pollock. Goodbye. Certainly not. Au revoir. Stu Adamson, the Poro man! That passage is taken from when Pollock has gone on the boat to leave Salima to take the transportation to Freetown. He has just burnt the head of the Poro man on the bonfire and expected it to be gone forever. So the relief you hear there, that's what I mentioned to begin with. The story contains pockets of hope. And this is one of those uh, pockets of hope. He thought he was leaving this behind and uh, leaving for better times. So uh, he says, goodbye, Poro, certainly not au revoir. Of course, the next thing that happens, the very next thing is that the captain saunters up to him and offers him to view a piece of curiosity he picked up, which is the pickled head of the poor man. So, yeah, it ended up being au revoir. So, um, yeah, Mike picked certainly uh, a hopeful section of the story, which doesn't surprise me one bit. That, that, that was Mike's. And, and the way he read it, I remember when I heard that, because I hadn't read the story in so long, and I, I really couldn't remember much of anything about it. And when it was actually Mike's reading of that passage that made me want to go back and read the story. Because when he read that, that uh, piece, the way he read it, and then leading into the song, it sounded so, so hopeful and so beautiful, in a way. It, it sounded like a really emotional, uplifting portion of the story, which would have been an uplifting thing, like... Farewell, Poro, or, you know, certainly not au revoir. And it's like, oh, that's beautiful. i got to go back and read that story. And then when you go back and read it, and read it within context of the, of the story, it's actually a, a pretty depressing, ironic part. And I, I, wonder, I wonder if Mike read the whole thing, or, and if he knew what he was doing there, or if he, um, if he kind of misinterpreted that phrase or just wanted to read something. I don't know. Because it, it seems like it, that, that, that line doesn't really do when you go back and put it in context with the story it doesn't really do what mike seemed to be wanting to do when he read that phrase yeah. at least the way i took it it's a passage of false hope and uh, he said this this passage reminded me of Stuart adamson and that's that's good you, you can say uh, they, they were still dealing with things we were all dealing with Stuart at that time and uh, when you single out the last line goodbye poro said pollock goodbye certainly not au revoir that seems almost cleansing. Let's cleanse ourselves of the, the black clouds hanging over things. Yeah, I can see why he picked it, but hey. you can't see this in context of the story because that doesn't work. <laughs> right, it doesn't at all. And I, yeah, it gave me chills when he read that before the song. I thought it was so, and I, and I, I thought of Stuart as well, and I thought, wow, that's really beautiful. But then, mm. you, then you read it with the story, and it's like, oh, no, it's not. It's, it's actually horrifying. Yeah. But then again, if you're going to read anything at all, I would be hard-pressed to find anything else because that is one of the pockets of hope and you would need to find something that isn't all dark or isn't all, you know, eerie. You know, what I would have read would, would have been one of my favorite passages, which is the one where he tries to play soccer. He tries to be a goalie and um, and <laughs> <laughs> he tries to get his mind off of it by being a goalie. But when uh, when people kick the ball to him, he screams and runs out of the way because he sees the head coming at him. That's the section I would have read. <laughs> you would not have read that. It's the one light moment in the in the story. Well, Come on, it, that's that's funny. I mean, the guy like trying to be a goalie, and he sees this head of, of a poor old man flag at him. Yeah, it's a, it's it's funny, <laughs> but uh, 
but the whole premise of reading, that's the thing that Mike read was, this reminds me of Stuart Adamson. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. I would never have read that. But yeah, I know. You're right. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. But anyway. Well, I'm, I'm glad I read it. It felt appropriate. It felt like they were trying to get a little closer to the source. And I, I do appreciate that. I appreciated it then. I appreciate it now. And it, you can't really see it as standing there representing the story. Uh, it, 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 it's got to be seen. I, at least I choose to see it different than that. Yeah, like you said, Mike did what he always does. He took something that's dark and he he gave it the Mike Peters treatment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he made it hopeful. <laughs> yeah, which works for him, I guess. <laughs> So having said all of this, let's let's look closer at the song itself, and let's start with the lyrics, since we just read the story, and the lyrics uh, are so tied to this in, in a way. Now, I will say first, I, I will look at this more from a story texture, but I do have some other things that uh, came up that I will uh, address after that. So th- there are a couple ways to read this, uh, this song. I will start with a discussion I saw on uh, one of the Facebook groups. I forgot which one. The song was described as a triumphant song, which um, musically, yeah, the last part of Poro Man really is triumphant, but lyrically it's not triumphant at all, is it? It's um, the opposite, and that's uh, going to make this a very interesting song to uh, to discuss for many reasons. As an album closer, as uh, what does the song mean? What does Stuart put into it personally, or is it purely based on the story? There's, there's a lot of things you can discuss here. To me, the song was always brooding, going into a dramatic type of brooding. This is a dramatic song. It's a classic big country epic. It goes through a lot of emotions, a lot of passages. And uh, the music matches, the lyrics matches the music, really. It's very, uh, a very happy marriage of, of both of those. And just like the music has two parts, because it does, there's a point where they change, and it, there's a first part, and there's a second part. And just like the music has these two parts... The lyrics also have two parts. The first part is both musically and lyrically brooding, spooky. Something is happening. Something is uh, very uneasy about that. Then the second part comes at you with more energy. And I think that is where people get the triumphant thing. More energy, more triumphant. Except it doesn't work that way. It's more energy, more drama. There are more things going on. So there is a perspective that changes a little bit. But uh, we'll start with the first part and see where that takes us. The first line, I, I, I just have sat and looked at that and just smiled. It's so good. Night hangs on the city like a blanket on a cage, a sacrifice prepared. Everybody who owns birds knows that this is how you put the birds uh, out for the night. You hang a blanket over the cage. It gets dark and the birds get quiet. And in the morning you remove it and then it's daytime. And here you have a city. That is, uh, nighttime falls on the city the same way. Someone has put a blanket of darkness over the city, which puts really the the mindset of night over everything. And uh, not necessarily night as in a physical manifestation of dark, but night as in 
the dark times. You know, it can be like the dark night of the soul. Someone has put on something here. And uh, it's very easy to draw the parallel to the story here, especially when, when you add the line, a sacrifice prepared. You, you think of the poor man and having his victim in his sight, like he hung the blanket over Pollock, who was tortured by this until the end, and he was the sacrifice prepared. I think um, going forward, I should be quick to say, I don't think this is a story about Pollock. I think this is a story about the concept of Poromen having that type of influence over people. And I will go further when I, I have some quotes I will read later. The second line, laughter lies on faces where the sun has never shown. The fear of life is strong. Continuation of the same thing. People will laugh, but the, the laughter doesn't reach down deep. If you go deep, there's actually fear. Lies on faces where the sun has never shown. Has there never been happiness in these lives? Have, it, have they been terrorized all their lives? And yes, they could have been. Pollock came along and got the wrath of the poor man after a certain point. But what if you were born in these lands? What if the Poro influence was always there? What if you were worried about pissing off the wrong person? If you piss off a Poro man, then you, you're in deep trouble. So I think it's more in those terms, which is why I say this is not a story necessarily about Pollock. I think it's a story about the Poro and their influence that they can have on a community. Also, in this, if you do look at the story, the Poro man instills in Pollock a fear of life so strong that the only solution for it is to end that life. He puts him in a situation where it's easy to take that step, wavering on the question of whether death is a good thing or a bad thing in the end. But we'll, uh, we'll go to the next verse. I'll start with the end a little bit. The line I want to start with, what is hidden in our hearts? That thing that absolves us of all worry. That death wish. Can a death wish absolve us of all worry? Death can save you from pain, but it can also save you from love and hope, which is something that comes later in the song. The thing about your fate being in the hands of someone else, a demon or a god, that uh, kind of makes what happens irrelevant in a way. They will decide what happened in the end, or they make the choice for you. But this, uh, this all points to that decision that waits towards the end. So I will actually jump a little bit ahead to the next verse, which plays into the exact same thing, because I'm, I'm noticing that I'm trying to separate things which talk of the same thing, and that doesn't make sense. So going into part two of the song... comes from the inside of time, takes his dust from a moving line. This may be a good time to mention some input we got from uh, Ayelet in Israel. 
She sent the poem and lyrics to her friend Shlomit, who is an English literature mayor and a writer of poems herself. So she sent the lyrics to her as an unbiased reader, but also as someone who's used to analyzing poems and asked her, what did she think that poem signified? And her answer was quick and very clear. And this is very interesting. So Ayelet asked her, who or what is Poroman based on these lyrics? And what does the writer expect from it or from him? And the answer that came back was, Poroman is death. He comes to save us from all worldly pain, but also takes away love and hope. And also a line like Poroman comes from the inside of time. Only death comes from the inside of time because it is infinite. It has no time. It comes with dust. And here we come back to the dust that is mentioned, that the poor man takes his dust from a moving line. Every time death comes and plucks some dust from the moving line, and that can be the line that all human beings move towards until one by one they're taken and turned to dust. And this uh, puts a new spin on the whole poor man thing. What does poor man represent in this story? It is nothing but death to, to Pollock. There's, there's no salvation in the end. There's a long, tortured uh, delay, which uh, if you go back to the story and to what uh, Perara said, he said the poor man, uh, he was not out to kill, at least not outright. He wanted to scare and worry a man with his spells, with his mystic influence, and with narrow misses on their life. And he wanted to worry a man so much that he would become sick of life. And that is eventually what happened to Pollock. It's exactly what happened to him. And he never had an active death wish. He just became sick of life. He became sick of all the stuff that was happening to him, of what was a worsening, a constant worsening, until uh, until there, there was nothing more. There was no joy. But at the very end, as the story goes, he saw hope. And the use of the word hope is almost twisted in a way. How can How can you put ending it all, how can you equate that with hope? But that's the word that uh, A.G. Wells put in there. That's from Pollock's perspective. He saw a way out. And you have to be really broken down to see it that way. But that's what the entire story led up to, the horror. This is a horror story in my eyes, a, a beautifully written one. It's really tense. And it is the horror of someone sliding gradually down to a point where they are so broken down and led into a situation where being able to stop the continual torture was better than the alternative. And that is the situation we find ourselves in in this song here. And that, that is what is being described. So um, when you go on and you see uh, lines like, on our knees with our eyes to the ground, those ones lost have now been found. Being on the knees with your eyes to the ground, that's a very submissive stance. You're kneeling, eyes cast down. And this is interesting because this is probably how the Poro system works in uh, those territories. They are the law, they are the religion, they are everything. And in the story, Pollock was advised to submit to the Poro man, to have him take the curse off. That was one of the ways out. And given Pollock's nature, that never seemed to be an option. That, uh, that never happened. Going on to the next line, those ones lost have now been found. This reminds me really more about the biblical quote from uh, the parable of the prodigal son, which you find in, uh, in Luke. This plays a bit on a well-known line from that story in the Bible, where there was a son that uh, lost his way and left the father, left the family, and uh, was led astray and ended up uh, more or less uh, without any wealth. And he was welcomed home. 
the father threw a party to welcome him back. And then the son, who had been good and been there all the time, felt, you know, why does he get a party? He was kind of always uh, disappointing you, and I was always here. And then the father said, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. And that is one of the well-known lines from the Bible, and it has been reused many times, including in song, like a song like Amazing Grace, as I once was lost, but now I'm found. And now this is showing up here as well. And in, in those kind of contexts, it usually means that you have found God again. Uh, to see it used here, I think it may have a different meaning, where in the Bible, this line was a reason to rejoice. In the world of the Purim man, is it a good thing to have been found? And found by who? Found by the Purim man? That's not a good thing, is it? And especially given the next couple of lines, which is a cry for salvation of the darkest kind, in give us iron, give us rope. And this is sung almost like a battle cry in this song, in what you could call the climax of the song, if you will. It is the climax of the song. But the climax here is not that triumphant. It sounds triumphant. But if we think back to the original story and keep in mind where Pollock's mind was at at the end, he was a broken man. He was worn down by the continual visions of the poor man's head, by everything else around him. He has seen his senses betray him one by one until the hallucinations were complete in every way. There were horrible nightmares, rheumatic-like pains. All these things had worn him down. And this is exactly what Pollock had been warned. So that is the situation we are in here, that uh, someone wants these things to stop. And uh, iron and rope, implements of taking your life. Pollock took his life with a piece of iron. I'm not even going to go there with the rope. But uh, it's, as the verse says... Save us from all love and hope. Give us iron, give us rope. You can be saved from all the pains and worries of the world, but you will also be saved from all the love and hope there is. The salvation we are talking about here is, is, is death, and it's also blind. If you go back to the analysis of what is Poroman, that um, was asked, and Poroman is death. And yeah, death is blind. The, the pain will go away, but so will all that is good in this world. And in the story, there was no more good for Pollock to be had. So the curse simply would not end. He would be stuck with it until the rest of his days, and he was in a pretty bad situation. So the song ends again with these words, give us iron, give us rope, repeated twice. And that is kind of where the song leaves us. So it, um, it tells the story. It almost is a warning, I would say. If you see it as a warning, then at least the song would play some uh, sort of, uh, well, it, it would have a purpose, I guess, is what I'm saying. But also there are some additional elements that you could add to it. Uh, one thing I did in preparation for this show was to listen to all the various ways this song was introduced live. And uh, most of them would be similar to uh, what he said in Tokyo 1984. We'll play that example. This next song is uh, about music 
which, like religion, has been used to split people up into dividing factions throughout the years. It's called Toro Man. That is a very short version of the one we uh, have from the Ritz in New York on October the 23rd, 1983. This is the first of two King Biscuit Flower Hour releases of that year. But if you have that King Biscuit release, you will know it's not the full show. And amongst the songs that are missing is unfortunately a rousing version of Pearl Man. But if you find that show and listen to how that song is actually introduced that day, the full recording, then you will have an interesting introduction that Stuart really didn't give otherwise. And one thing you notice when you, uh, when you listen to recordings of the U.S. tour is that Tony actually introduced quite a lot of the songs on that tour. I know there was some degree of self-consciousness about Stuart's Scottish accent that uh, would play in. They were trying to play for the big time. And uh, there are moments on that tour where Stuart will say the old, does anyone understand what I'm saying? But it's without any of the humorous follow-up that would come later. It was actually a serious question. Do you understand me? Asked with a slight nervousness, uh, a short nervous laughter. He was genuinely unsure if Americans were able to understand him. Two of us, myself, I'm Tony, and Mark the drummer from London, and Stuart and Bruce are from Bonnie, Scotland. I bet you can't understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> so on that tour, Tony introduced a lot of the songs. Not all the songs. Uh, Stuart would speak too, but they would they would share. And Tony did some of that, including at that Ritz show that we are talking about. Tony introduced Pearl Man, like he did on several gigs on that tour. What is unique about this particular show is that Stuart actually stepped in. He chimed in after Tony had done the introduction. And maybe he wanted to do it because uh, this show was recorded for radio. I don't know. Maybe he wanted to get something out. Uh, it ended up not being part of that show as it was uh, transmitted. But on that date, he added something very interesting. So let's listen to that now. It's a song called Poraman. This song is about, suppose it's like music in a way. The song itself is about religion. And in Scotland, there's a lot of religious bigotry, whereas it should be about sharing feelings between people. I think music should be the same way, but there's too many people put up barriers between it. There's no barriers here at all. This is called Pearl Man. The song itself is about religion. And in Scotland, there is a lot of religious bigotry, whereas it should be about sharing feelings between people. I think music should be the same way, but there's too many people putting barriers between it. There's no barriers here at all. This is called Poro Man. Hmm. That casts a different spin on it. So if you look at this song in religious terms, that is um, interesting. Of course, if you look at Poro beliefs, as they are outlined in the story, and particularly in the song, that too could be argued to be a religion. And indeed, that's what is said, that the Poro is the religion. It's also the law. It's all-encompassing. So it isn't a leap as a starting point to make it be more about religion in a wider sense. We don't really learn a lot about Poro as a religion. We don't know how it's really practiced. What we primarily learn is that it is a very restrictive religion. It seems to be ruled by fear. It's very focused on honor, as in 
you know, he took the woman's life. He, he stabbed her in the heart for being in the presence, whether voluntary or non-voluntary, of, of Pollock. Basically, you don't want to piss off any of the poor men, or there will be hell to pay. And like we mentioned, salvation comes in the form of submission or death, which is pretty absolute. Stuart wants religions to be about sharing feelings between people. So he reacts, he mentioned in this quote from the intro to the song, he, he reacts to what he calls religious bigotry or intolerance. I don't know much about the Scottish thing. I know the obvious stories that everybody's heard. We know the historic boundaries between Catholics and Protestants, which is a far too complex thing to get into here with the respect that the topic deserves. But when Stuart talks about how too many people put barriers up and says there are no barriers here, I think it comes from a simple wish that religion could be unifying rather than divisive. Even if you don't agree, let's not build walls between the people who do agree with you and those who don't. And maybe there are other types of poro men, putting blanket over people's life to create a night, like the song says. And maybe those are the ones who create the atmosphere of obedience and having to toe the line, not to do something forbidden. And if you go back and listen to the, the first verses of the more brooding part of the song, it's all there, and you can apply it to these things. And based on this introduction, that seemed to be exactly what Stuart wanted to do with this song. So... Um, I have a feeling my co-host will say more about this, so I will leave that topic there and uh, let him let Tom say more if he wants to, because I've been talking for so long and I haven't even gotten to the music yet. So wait, I will get to speak. Well, I get to, I will get to speak in this episode. It's not like I've been <laughs> able to hold you back yet. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, go for it, man. What, so you're you're done with the lyrics completely? Yeah, more more or less. I mean, I'm not going to go all to town on the. Uh, on the whole religious thing, but uh, it it falls into the same thing. It's um, it's an interesting uh, introduction to the song. The interesting thing, what I will end with, is how that seems to be the one occasion where he would give the song that introduction, and certainly in the years to come, he would focus more on saying how it's based on the short story. That's what he would go back to. Mm. And that uh, also, um, I think we have some other examples on this album where Certain backgrounds of songs were hinted at, but then gone back to uh, the basic meaning or the uh, non-controversial meaning. Yeah, this this song is is very very difficult. It's always been a difficult song for me. Um, I, I feel like I understand it a lot more now than I ever did. Uh, a lot of that is really due to reading the story, reading the short story, and I, I think that those ideas about religion and uh, and that type of thing. It, they're, they're very interesting, and I don't at all, you know, I wouldn't dare to say that Stuart wasn't being truthful when he says that. I'm sure those things play into the song in, in, in ways, but I really do believe that the bulk of this song is about depression and is about suicidal thoughts, and I think it speaks on a very deep personal level to Stuart. Now, I, I feel like I feel like the actual story, Pollock and the Pearl Man, is it's not really a huge part of these lyrics, in other words. Like, when I, when I read these lyrics, I really don't feel like they're tied into the political situation in that story or, or how the, the poor old man, how his rule worked or the type of magic he practiced. I, I don't really think the details of that story are, are that crucial to these lyrics because I really feel like that story is incidental in some ways to the, the greater view and the greater outlook on of this uh, of the lyrics of this song which are are much more personal now 
I think obviously the story is huge in the in the respect that you have to look at it from the basic feeling that story leaves you with, which is the sense of inevitability. Like like Pollock's death was inevitable. There was nothing he could do to stop the the spell that he'd been put under. He he tried everything. He tried you know everything he could possibly do, but there was no way to get around it. It just it just couldn't be escaped from. And I think that is the main point of Poro Man. In fact, I, I read earlier reviews of this song and, well, of the album, The Crossing, in, in different reviews, and I remember one reviewer called it a rumination on death. And I think that's exactly what it is. And it's hard to imagine thinking that back then when this came out, because the, the lyrics are so difficult to really delve into and get into and, and fully grasp and understand. They're so abstract in nature, especially if you haven't read that story. I mean, they did used to always say, you know, even I remember even back in the time when the album came out, they would say, well, Perlman is an African witch doctor. But that's all they would say. They wouldn't, I've, I don't think I ever heard Stewart say that this was based on the short story Pollock and the Pearl Man until much later. So the only the only detail I would get is that, oh, oh a Pearl Man is an African witch doctor. Okay, well, what does that mean now in context with the song? Well, it just was a lot of, like a lot of these other songs for me. It was kind of like I never really grasped specifically what it was about, but there was a, a vibe to it that I felt like I did understand on a deeper level. There was this ominous vibe to the song. And I do remember those lines that Stuart said about religion um, when he introduced the song. And, and so I took that and because that was of interest to me, and I tried to put that into the song as well. I mean, it, it's definitely in there. There are definitely moments that are in there, but even that I don't think really fits the song as well as just the sad reality of what I think it is, which is just these feelings of uh, deep depression and darkness and, and wondering about the purpose of life and thinking about the inevitability of death and what that means for everyone and whether you know the person who's writing this song or singing this song might be talking about their own suicidal feelings, which may have come before. I mean, I think what we've discovered over the years in, in reading things and reading interviews and hearing from band members and, and that type of thing is that even though so many of us were absolutely stunned at the way things ended with Stewart because we did not see that coming, many people have you know, more recently said they did see these types of things um, in Stewart from the very beginning. Like he always had these these issues. They may not have been as pronounced, obviously, as they were in 1999 or 2000, 2001, but they saw them throughout his life. And I think we, we've seen that too, as we've really delved into a lot of the research. And I'm always taken back to Mark Brzezicki's comment in that classic rock interview from a few years ago, where he says, as the drummer, he never really paid that much attention to the lyrics. But now he's gone back and looked at the lyrics and he said he was shocked that everything about Stewart was really laid out in the lyrics and it just never really hit him before. He said it was all right there you know, in these, in these lyrics, even from the beginning. And I think you find that a lot in this song. And I'm not saying this song is, is Stewart's declaration that he's going to, you know, take his own life. I just think it's a really interesting way that a young Stuart Adamson tried to put into a song, some of these feelings that maybe he had had from time to time. I mean, we know that he had a, a troubled time growing up. We don't know exactly what that was. I remember Richard Jobson in his book talks about some secret type of thing in his family or something that happened in his family growing up that he wasn't really going to say much more about, but it was something that really weighed on him. And 
when you look back on his life, he seemed like a kind of guy who was always grappling with these types of things. And, th- and that's the way I look at Pearl Man. I mean, I, I think it's it's great that you brought up the bird thing because I was going to bring that up too. I, I used to date this girl who um, whose mother used to have all of these birds. I, I never understood why people would want birds as pets. I, that's just my opinion. I think they're like the worst kind of pet you could ever have. <laughs> I mean, they don't belong in a cage really to, to begin with, and there's nothing you can really do with them except listen to them and say, peep, peep, come on, peep. And, and maybe they'll, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Peeping something. Well, I, I had this, uh, I had another friend when I was, this is another tangent, but a, a story. Um, I used to spend the night at a friend's house and sh- his mom had this parakeet. And every morning, um, whenever I would spend the night over there, sometimes on weekends, I would, she would wake us up by, by going to this bird whose name was Joey. And she would say, peep, Joey, peep, peep, Joey, peep. And we still say this today, like 30 years later, this, this friend and I will just see, see each other and we'll just start saying that. But anyway, the mother of the girl that I dated, she, she had like 20 birds, I think. And if ever we were at, at her house and watching TV or something, that's exactly what she would do. She would take this blanket and she would hang it over the cages of the birds and they would all shut up and they would think it was nighttime. And it almost had a hypnotic effect on them. And, mm. and when you look at that in context with the song in that first verse, that's kind of what I get. It's like this hypnotic sense of some force or some being or something that's putting these people in a, in a form of um, supplication almost or this hypnotic trance where they're, they're just being quiet. They're waiting for this thing that's going to be happening to them. They're almost like you often I've, – I've seen in movies when people are – prepared for a sacrifice sometimes the people who are going to sacrifice them will give them something to dull their senses or to make them put them in a state of of almost catatonic type of state and that's kind of what i get out of this like the people who are here in this city which i take as a metaphor for the human race really are like this blanket is over top of them and and to me that blanket on the cage is the specter of death that's there for everyone the next line I find really interesting and also, you know, really indicative of that whole depression type of thing. Laughter lies on faces. You could take that in two different ways. Um, you could take it as laughter lying as in being on a face. Laughter is on a face. Or you could take it as laughter literally lying. It's it's telling an untruth on a face. And we often get that with people who are who are suffering from depression they'll say you know they've got this false face they might be laughing you know to try to cover the way they're feeling deep inside but the laughter is a lie because it's just hiding it's just masking what they're really feeling deep down inside and i've even heard people you know reference stewart that way like especially during the last years of his life where where again you would never know that he was going through these things and I can speak to that just from the brief time that I met him. It's like so jovial, so funny, laughing, making jokes, life of the party type of of, uh, of personality. But looking back, you know that this was also when he was in really deep trouble mentally. So that that's kind of how I look at that, and I think that's a very accurate way to des- to describe depression. You know, and I had I've often mentioned my friend Chris uh, on this show who who sadly took his life, you know, not that long after Stewart did. And he was the same way. He was a hilarious guy, told hilarious jokes, always made me laugh. But he was always incredibly depressed. So I, I think that's just like a defense mechanism. A lot of people who suffer from 
serious depression will will use and to try to make themselves fit in at the moment or to try to put it out of their mind but you know where laughter lies on faces where the sun has never shown you know again it's 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 hyperbolic in a way because as you said you know have, has there never been happiness uh, with with anyone but that that's the sense of someone who is really stuck in a in a depression i think uh, and and when you're stuck in that deep of a hole it almost feels as if you can't even you can't even come into contact with with what might have been happier times in the past because maybe you you've been dealing with this dark time for so long and then that other line, the fear of life is strong. I think that that's a fascinating line because it's also not the first time that Stewart has used that line. He used the same line, or, or at least the same phrase, the fear of life, in Angle Park, written within the same basic time frame. The tiles ring with fear of life from Angle Park. And there's a line that Stewart says when asked about that song. He says, uh, I'm speaking of Angle Park. He says, Angle Park is about the feelings I have on mental institutions. And he said that in Smash Hits 1983. So the fear of life is a phrase that runs through some of that work. It was there in Angle Park. It was there in Peroman. And it must have meant something to him. So it's like, what is this fear of life that you're thinking about? And I think I think for a lot of people who are depressed and, and really thinking deeply about these types of things like what does life mean and they're depressed there's a certain fear to fit in to what is quote unquote normal it's like a fear of those responsibilities to live what would be deemed a normal life because there are some types of people and i can totally relate to these types of people who just don't feel like they fit in who don't don't feel like they're a part of this type of what what is expected of them in life you know raise a family get a job do what they need to do some people are very content doing that and very happy doing that others fear it you know because it it doesn't really represent who they are and they just never feel a sense of ease with life in general and i I've, I've seen a lot of people who suffer from depression have that and my again my friend chris was like that he made a career out of going to graduate school because he never wanted to get a job. He just kept going to school and taking more classes and getting more degrees because he di- he didn't want to he didn't want to work, he didn't want to go out into what people would say the quote unquote real world. It just didn't it didn't appeal to him. He was afraid of it. And so he had that fear of life. And I I I just always think about that when I read lines like that. And then this other line, this next part of the verse, we are waiting in a forest deep and dark behind the wall. That is a that is a stunning line to me. Uh, it's just very powerful. Uh, and again, I, I take the lyrics of this song as being much less about the story Pollock and the Poro Man, and more being inspired by the general theme of that and applying it to humans and a type of of person who has these types of feelings. And for me, the we are waiting in a forest is the we here to me is those dark feelings that many people have that they try to suppress. Deep and dark behind the wall, the wall would be something that is encircling a city. If we're thinking about ancient times or medieval times, the city was within a wall, and outside of the wall was often a deep, dark forest that people didn't venture into without protection or without soldiers. And, and what was happening, what, what the reality was, was within the wall. And I take the things going on within the wall here as being the public face that people put on, the the public face that they that they show to their friends, to their coworkers, 
to the people in their life. That's what's happening within the wall. But beyond the wall, deep and dark in this forest, are these thoughts, are these troubles, are these battles with depression, and these grappling with what life means and with death and the inevitability of it and what actually makes life worth living. And uh, again, to me, that comes back to these feelings of depression and people who are dealing with that. And then he says, what is hidden in our hearts absolves us of all worry when our fate is in the hands of a demon or a god. You know, you you mentioned that, and I I agree. It's kind of like, um, that's a tough line, but it does kind of go back to, you know, these things that are so buried deep down, this this death wish, as you say, this idea of death can, can get to a point where you think, well, what's the point? You know, I'm not, why worry about things when this is all going to happen outside of my ability to control anyway? You know, we're all fated to, to die. And is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it the result of a God, which is a good thing? Or is it at the hand of a demon in which it's something that's, that's bad? And, and I think this idea has been talked about also in, in Stewart's work. And some of the lines that I think are very similar to this are, for example, East of Eden, where he says, why care about the weather? It always ends in dark. That also has this idea of why worry about it? It always ends in dark. There's no reason to worry. And and we even get that much later in Thunder and Lightning from Why the Long Face, where he says, we shouldn't worry about being outside when it's dark on both sides of the door. Like, who cares? You know, it's dark on both sides. Just go, just go do what you got to do. So it's... Yeah, I don't know how to take that line really. I, I I feel like it ties into some of these these other lyrics that came later, but I don't know exactly how to take that line in this context of this song. I guess it's getting back to that dichotomy that we see in this song, like death being viewed as a good thing, but the reason it's being viewed as a good thing is because of a horrible thing. So it's like the good thing is escaping this horrible thing, which in itself having to do that is a horrible thing. So it's it's just this weird circle that that goes around here yeah and i would go back to the end of the story there because i still marvel at how that is put in that story that the way out is painted as hope it's camouflaged as hope but it is a death wish yeah so it is twisted it is twisted the way it is but uh, that's how it seems when when you are that far gone yeah and everything you say resonates really i think with what i said even if you look at from the story perspective dark depression perspective the religious one that Stuart threw in is kind of the wrench here but uh yeah it's interesting yeah it is and not to not to beat this thing with my friend into the ground because i know this is getting dark and and depressing but um you know and it's not just him but it's a lot of people who have tried to commit suicide and haven't been successful are incredibly upset about it i remember my friend talking to him and very matter-of-factly he he said he had tried to do that and his roommate called the ambulance and he was resuscitated. And his first thought when he was brought back was he was incredibly angry at his roommate. He was incredibly angry at the people who had brought him back. And I remember him saying to me, I'm probably going to do it again. And, you know, so it's like, it was very, very awful, very awful trying to, trying to work with this guy. And, and inevitably there was nothing that could be done, you know, much like Pollock and the Pearl Man. It was inevitable. So people do get that sense. Uh, they do get to this warped sense where it all, often feels like a sense of hope uh, to yes. to get to that point. And then, you know, I think Ayelet's friend 
And thank you, Ayala, for sending that email because it was very interesting uh, and definitely very enlightening and illuminating for a lot of these things, which I had always been thinking about with this song. But yeah, Paramount come from the inside of time, takes his dust from a moving line. And as was mentioned, you know, like that's almost like just this never ending cycle of, of people. You know, death is something that everyone has in common, unfortunately. Now, whether you believe in an afterlife or what's going to happen after death, that's a whole different topic. But but everyone's going to face that. Everyone's going to face their own mortality. And so here's this idea of this moving line of people, like an assembly line. It's very cold. And the poor man is just taking his dust from those. But yeah, the, where I see that religious thing too, where I could see it fitting is especially in that on our knees with our eyes on the ground, those once lost have now been found. And to me, that's a that's a really scary line and a, and a really twisted way of of sort of twisting those old Bible verses and the line from Amazing Grace that you mentioned. And, um, it, you know, when you see on our knees and then you're thinking later of, of someone saving you, you get the sense of like, oh, this is a religious thing. And I, I kind of thought about that for a while without having the foresight of, of really understanding about the eyes on the ground thing, because that is this idea of of uh, fear. There's fear involved there. You know, it's not, it's not like like in the Bible when people knelt before Jesus – you get the sense that they were looking up at him, thanking him for what they what he had done for them, you know, and, and you know, looking at him and seeing the love in his eyes or whatever. But here you've got people on their knees with their eyes on the ground. And, you know, when you have that, it's like you don't want to be found. So the idea of those once lost have now been found is kind of this sense of to me like, oh, the poor old man has found you. You know, death has found you. You 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 had eluded him. But now he's found you. So you were lost to him, but now you've been found. And that's not what you don't want to be found <laughs> by him. So, again, that, that's like a very, very dark and frightening line to me. Uh, that's a pretty powerful line. And then, um, you know, I'd, I'd say the give us iron, give us rope at the end, but save us from all worldly pain. You see that and you think, okay, that, that's good. Save us from the glowing rain. That's good. Back in those days when this album came out, uh, there was always a lot of talk about acid rain. I remember, you know, that was a big, big deal. And I think that's what the glowing rain here refers to. You know, this acid rain that was falling, and that was one of the big things that people would would cite when they would talk about saving the environment. But then, yeah, save us from all love and hope. It's like that line always never made sense to me, and, and always stood at odds to me with the song and I sort of just brushed it aside like well I don't know I don't know, know what that means exactly and I'm not going to think that deeply about it but yeah I mean it, it's it's death 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 saves you from everything because death gets rid of every, everything it saves you from the pain and all the situations that are bad in the world but it also eliminates love and hope from your life you know because there is no more life and so when I go back to that reviewers saying it's a rumination on death that is what i get from these words it's like someone who's young and steward and a young family and thinking about the things that most of us have thought about you know what what's the purpose of life well, f being afraid of death being afraid of life wondering what death will bring wondering if there's you know the questions of an afterlife or or is it just the end but there is this sense of inevitability like there's nothing you can do about it just like Pollock and the Pearl Man, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And I definitely see the whole iron and rope thing when it's listed there as being, you know, instruments of someone taking their own life. But you could also look at it in a different way. I often look at it 
when you think about the inevitability thing, whenever someone is in a position where they say there's nothing they can do about a certain situation, they often will say, our hands are tied. There's nothing we can do about it. And iron and rope are both a means of tying someone's hands. You, you can tie them up with rope. You could put shackles on them, which are made of iron. So that's another way to look at it. You know, that just give us iron, give us rope. We can't do anything. We're powerless to stop you. We're powerless to stop the Pearl Man. We might be able to be lost from his gaze for a while, but he will find us. Or you can certainly look at it, the other aspect that we talked about. Pollock ends up taking his life with a piece of metal, which could be looked at as the iron there. So it, it's it's a very, I mean, good Lord, is an incredibly dark song. And it's it may be one of the most dark songs the band has ever done. I mean, this, this would make some of the songs on Drive Me to Damascus look like... Uh, little nursery rhymes, you know, like, like happy little go lucky tunes. And, and I hate, I hate to have to talk about such a dark song in this way on this album, because, you know, I think I speak for you as well. When, when, when we started to think about this album, just the natural inclination is like, Oh, well, this will be more of a breath of fresh air because this is such a positive album. And I think most people look at it that way when you just think of in a big country and some of these other songs, but you know, it really does end on a very disturbing, haunting note. And uh, it begins with such hope and such optimism within a big country. But the end is is anything but that. You know, it's so, it's so strange that it starts with Stay Alive. And then the the closer on the album is a rumination on death. Yeah, something for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, in one of them is like this album really, it's sort of sort of shocked me how it's it's really encompassed the entire span of not really the just the band so much, but really Stewart in a lot of ways. You know, if you can look at this album from beginning to end and it's kind of like Stewart's arc and uh, and that's not necessarily a comforting thing to think about. But I, I don't know. I, I'd love to I'd love to go back in time to the time this song was written and just ask Stuart, what, what, just get into his mind. What are you thinking as you write this to see if he really was that down? If he, if he had dealt with these things, you know, I don't know. I, I want to think that he wasn't back then because I like to think of that time as, as sort of removed from the latter part. But yet we know that he was often troubled by these things and troubled by mental things. And as I mentioned, I referenced Angle Park. He was writing about mental institutions back then. So he must have thought about that aspect of things as well. And, you know, it's just what whatever happened. I mean, the one good thing is that, you know, whatever his mindset was at that time, it passed. It seemed to have passed and he got through it. I mean, he wrote many other great, wonderful, optimistic songs, but you know, this is just a part of him. And, and this is a song that reflects that part of him. And uh, it's it's a difficult song, and it, and it's one of those one of those many songs in the Big Country catalog. And this is kind of our segue into the musical aspects of it. That is so bizarre because the music makes you want to pump your fist. The music makes you want to jump and in, in unison and shout, "Give us iron, give us rope!" And and then Tony's, you know, rope, 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 rope. That goes a great part of the performance live and. And you forget what the song is about, you know? You just get caught up in the, in the anthemic music and when it kicks into that that jig at the end and 
but you know when you when you look at the the lyrics and you know really delve into them you realize that this is not a song to be shaking your fist to and embracing your big country buddies to as you dance and sing it's it's strange so yeah but it's not unique in that way we have so many songs where the music is celebratory and the lyrics are something else yeah and this uh, this is a prime example of it really uh, yeah, before I go completely into the music, uh, I guess I never saw it that dark because I hang on to the notion that I think Stuart read that story and uh, got inspired by that story using Poor Man as a kind of uh, allegory and taking it into an area that he was interested in yeah. rather than because he was in a dark place. But I think it resonated with him because he perhaps had been there so I see it more as an exploration, perhaps, into those things rather than this is me from my dark days. This is uh, right, <laughs> me right. putting music to my darkest thoughts. But then again, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I never had, like you unfortunately have friends who ended their life that way. I, I don't have a lot of those things that perhaps would make me more think in those terms. Right. So uh, it's... Um, but it doesn't. One doesn't exclude the other here because we're talking about the same area, really. We're talking about the same area, and it's uh, inescapable in the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think you know, I think that's the one thing. Whether he was feeling that way when he wrote the song or not, you know, when you read those lyrics, as someone who's dealt with this, and I, you know, I've dealt with yeah. mental Ill- illness my whole life. I've got an older brother who's who's still dealing with it. I, you know, I've had my own issues with it, never to that, never to that degree, thankfully, but. You know, you read those lyrics and you and you see, well, this guy understands. You know, he understands what it's like. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like there's no way you could understand it that well unless you have experienced some of those things yourself, you know, so. Yeah, no, it um, it rings true. But it, it can work on many, many levels. Yeah. So you talked less about the religious aspect than I thought you would. I kind of left it open for you. But I, I guess that's not where, what this song represents to you. It really doesn't. I mean, uh, you know, I, and again, I don't, I don't discount what Stuart said. I'm sure that there were things in there. I mean, you know, you could look at it as if, if Poro Man is a metaphor for religion in general, you could look at it as a commentary on the falseness of religion or, or the, uh, the emptiness of religion. Religious bigotry is what he mentioned, especially. Yeah. And see, I don't see that in the lyrics, though. I, I just don't see it. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Stuart, Stuart was not one to sort of obfuscate what songs meant at times. You know, sometimes he would throw things out there which may have had a had a connection to the song, but didn't necessarily mean that it was totally about that. And I, I get the feeling that he probably wouldn't have felt comfortable at that point saying, well, this is a song about death and how, you know, my own <laughs> thoughts about that I've had in the past yeah, about this. I don't know. Maybe he would have, but... I don't know. I, I, I don't see that explanation as – and it sounds wrong because this is the guy that wrote the song, but I just don't see that explanation as fitting in very neatly to the lyrics to me. But um, mm-hmm. I wish we could talk more with him about it. Yeah. Um, but we, we can't, so. We have included his comments on this, so it's all there for people to, to think about and make up their own minds, and we can uh, continue the discussion as we always do on, on, on the Facebook group. Yes. So let's uh, talk about the music then. It's um, this is this is the happy part, isn't it? This is uh, <laughs> this is the triumphant part. Not not all triumphant. It's actually very very spooky in, in places. But I have to start by 
looking back to the first episode of the deep dive where we discussed a quote about the crossing and about that album having more overdubs than steel town and we, we haven't really kept an eye out for this on a song by song basis as we move through the album and i don't think this statement means that every song is an overdub fest because uh, some songs clearly pull more than they're shared in that department but this time i think it's worth bringing up because poro man is definitely one of those songs that I feel adds heavily to the tally of overdubs. This song has many, many overdubs from beginning to end. And it's not just about straight layering of instruments, because we hear that happening too, but also many effects being used on the album or on this, this song and how they stack together. So, so this song is really instrumental in setting up an ambience that work with the lyric and the message it conveys. And by necessity, the song starts in a brooding, menacing piece of unease. This is one of those something is coming songs that we have labeled over the course of our podcast. The something is coming song. You sense something is going on. Something's happening or about to happen. Things are uneasy. Things may even be bad. But at the same time, you sit there hypnotized by the sheer innovation that has gone into the song, the musicality of the performances and the genius of writing and arranging all these intricate parts and how well they work together. This song is musically absolutely stunning. And uh, the intro really sets the bar. When the song begins, it starts with a simple yet very intricate guitar part, which is played with, with a delay effect. And judging by all the live videos we have seen of the song, it is Stuart playing that part, and he plays the intro with a lot of delay, where the delay volume is only slightly lower than the original signal. So you have a main line you can follow, with the other one being the shade of it. I love that effect. It's a great effect. And also, practically, when they play it live, uh, the delay does a lot of the work for you. So what you're left with there is a very intricate little part, a very curious part, a very interesting part. And uh, the big thing about the Poroman intro is that it builds. Parts keep coming in all the time. We have Bruce coming in with an additional guitar line. Tony following with a bass line shortly after. And after a few bars more, at that point the drums come in and the bass drops to the bottom line and the song starts getting that hypnotic underlying feel. And the guitars keep spinning on that theme on top of it, on top of that much more rhythmic bottom line. And they add rhythm guitars, uh, or chords on electric guitars, really, used not for a rhythm part, but to fill out the background of the music. And at this point, when I sit there listening, I'm just so 
lost in that hypnotic effect of the bass and drums. The bass and drums tempo just has that repetitive, comfortable, the groove, but still with those lead guitars sounding almost manic on top there, playing over and over their little sections. And then eventually that lead guitar work is replaced with more of a strumming section. But the sound of those strumming guitars is just so incredibly atmospheric. And it's it's really not like any guitar sound I have heard before or really since. That sound is just incredible and adds to really a huge, huge sound at this point. The song has quietly, step by step, built up into something that sounds larger than life. And then we have the breakdown, and the guitar play almost a scratch part, and the drums do a roll, and the song heaves, and it continues, and that just adds to a sense of drama that the song is building. So, uh, yeah, the song is sounding huge at this point. It's really managed to build up into some momentum. And you realize at this point, this really isn't a typical song. This is more than an intro. You're experiencing something here that's worthy to stand alone. It's not an intro. It's the early musical featured part of the song. And then the vocals come in. And the the instruments take a slight step back. And the song is established now. It has a rhythm. It has a hypnotic feel. It has an atmosphere. And uh, it's it's amazing. And the next thing that happened, almost before you know it, when uh, when Stuart starts the second line, Christine Beveridge returns. She's been missing for a little bit at this point, but her haunting vocals return, providing the ethereal ah over the second line, over the first verse. And again, the second line of the second verse, for that matter, and, and some part in the later part of the song. I just have to say that the hairs on top of my hairs that are already standing to tension are, are, are standing to tension at that point. That's like goosebump on goosebump. I have to say that I wish Big Country had dipped back into that haunting, ethereal backing vocal a bit more often after the crossing. It's so effective on songs like The Storm and All Fall Together and also here. So Christine, she has her parts on Poro Man. She's more sparingly used than, for example, songs like The Storm. But I can tell you when, when her part comes in, it's so noticeable. It, it's such a perfect fit. It's, uh, I, I'm almost brought to, uh, you know, I'm already touched and close to tears. This is so beautiful. It's music unlike what has been made anywhere else. But me wanting more of that vocal probably also says something about the type of songs I primarily want from this band. I love that type of build. I love that type of ethereal setup. And of course, it's, Epicer than an epic thing. So, so there you go. So they sing those two lines, and this song never stops delivering. After that, you go straight into an evo. 
a beautiful Ebo part. Pure beauty, but not beauty in that sugar-sweet way. It's more part of, it adds to the musical fabric of this song, which, which is something else entirely. And that, that is also the part of the song where Mark taps back into militaristic drums. And uh, after that, uh, making a rhythm guitar with delay and echo to take focus while the Ebo still hangs there in the background. It's absolutely beautiful. And then it all comes together again with those uh, high-pitched guitars really signaling the start of the next section. And those guitars always seem so dramatic to me. I don't know if you know which one I mean. Yeah, I think I think I know. It's something about the way they, they squeak. Yeah. It's almost like someone calling for help, or I don't know, I get some sort of vibe of uh, there, there's something very dramatic going on, and the music is signaling it. So the song builds again after that mightily into the second verse. And what an arrangement we have so far. We have the long intro, which I don't think we should call an intro, with many faces and going through several changes. Then a few lines are sung. We have Christine singing part of it. And then the song morphs into the Ebo section and beyond. This is as far away from a traditional rock arrangement as you will come. No verse chorus, verse chorus, solo verse chorus here. This is unique in every way. So innovative, so incredibly well planned as far as setting up something, making you feel something, taking you on a journey and actually evoking moods. And uh, then you have the lyrics that we have already talked about going along with this and how the music backs up and adds to it emotionally. It's absolutely beautiful. The second part of the second verse, like I mentioned, yet another Christine Beveridge part. After that, the song changes from part one to part two. Because like I said, this is a song in two parts. And the funny thing about it, the ha in the middle of these two parts is really the separator. That is the point. Everything before the ha in the middle there is the first part. Everything after can be seen as the second part. And the second part is much more traditional, energetic, standard, big country. I have to admit, a little less interesting to me than the first part, but it's still a great, great part. And um, just to mention Beverage again, she's there in the second part of each of the continuing verses. She's actually in the second part of every verse. The drums play a very important part in the second part of the song. That's something you notice right away. And if the guitars were the stars of the first part, I think the drums are the stars of the second part. And that's almost a little bit by necessity, where the first part is brooding and sets definite moods and builds atmosphere. The second part is energetic and sounds musically much more triumphant. That is where the uh, connection between music and lyrics is less evident. I think the first part of the song 
the music is perfect for the lyrics. Even if you see it in the darkest possible way, that's a perfect marriage of music and lyrics. It's the second part where you can start getting wrong ideas based on the triumphantness of the music, if you will. So uh, there's not too much more to say of that. I'm going to talk about something that probably um, people would expect that I do. I broke down the vocal versus instrumental moments in the song. This is a very instrumental-driven song. A a huge part of the song is actually instrumental. And uh, the verses are very short. It's like you said, a couple of verses and, uh, and a bridge. I added this together. The first part of the song is very, very instrumental. The first verse starts at 2.20. So you're nearly two and a half minutes into the song. And then it's at 2.40. That's two lines, 20 seconds. The second verse starts at 4.28. That's a lot later in the song, too. And it's at uh, 4.48. So the next two lines, more or less 20 seconds there again. And that's what you have for the first part of the song. Very instrumental-driven, not very lyric-driven. Then the song changed to the second part, and the third verse is 5.26 to 6 minutes. That's the poem that comes from the inside of time all the way up to the last give a siren of the first part. And the fourth verse, 6.15 to 6.35, that is to save us from the worldly pain part. And then you have 16 more seconds of give a siren, give us rope at the end. What this adds up to is 1 minute and 50 seconds of singing and 6 minutes and 6 seconds of instrumentals. So the song has 23% singing and 77% instrumentals. There you go. That's statistics <laughs> that you never thought you would hear, but there you have it. Oh, I thought I would hear them. <laughs> yeah, probably. Everybody expects this now. <laughs> so, yeah, I, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the end of the song. The end of the song is interesting to me. We have examples prior on the album where I think the ending lacks something. And we have examples where the ending is gorgeously beautiful, well-designed, well-crafted endings. This is kind of in the middle for me. It's probably one of the things I would hold against the song a little bit, but not quite. While not technically a fade-out, it almost feels like it. And that's because we, we clearly hear the song end. They have a transition from the full tilt thing till the end part, where they take it down to quiet strumming over militaristic drums. That's kind of it. And they play some bars of that, and then they end it. Halfway through that end section, you can hear the fade-out start. And I've listened to this many times. I really don't think I'm imagining it. It's not because they're playing it quieter either, which which they did for the entire part. But they start fading it down. And uh, this always stood out to me. I won't say it bugs me, but it's very peculiar and maybe even odd. But it's not a full fade-out, because you do hear the song end before they faded it down to zero which I'm glad about because fade-outs is not something I'm very fond of. And about the end itself, I would not say that it ends abruptly, but what I would say is that the transition from the full-on playing that happens before the end section to the more quieter strumming is very sudden. It's like a car that is driving very fast and suddenly needs to slow down on short notice. So you need to hit the brakes a little harder than ideal. You need to get down to the slower tempo quick 
making the slowdown for those who sit in the car more uncomfortable than it needs to be. And that's how the song feels. It needs to slow down very quickly from one bar to the next. It goes from the super full tilt to the quiet end section. But that's, uh, that's how it is. I mean, if I look at this as a reflection of the original story, if you go back to there, where Pollock, after living in a horrible existence towards the end, suddenly sees some hope, and shortly after that, he was gone. It ends suddenly in the story, too. So if, if you look at the story again, and uh, that's how this end hit me, just as melodramatic as the story and just like that, and it doesn't even need to be the story. It can be anyone who is caught up in this, uh, the world of the poro of their own choosing. That's how it, it could go. And the only other way to do that would be to design an ending that is even more triumphant than what was before and end it on a triumphant fanfare, go out, not on a quiet note, but on a final note of epic bombast. That would be the opposite thing. And I'm not sure what would have been best, but uh, I would have loved personally to see the song cycle back into the eerie music of the first part and maybe even remove layers that were added during the intro, perhaps quicker than the intro, not to draw it out in the end there, but maybe end it in a similar fashion and maybe even ending it on the same echoing guitar part that the, the song begins with and then silence. That would have been cool. That's kind of a full circle thing. But that's just one fan fantasizing and playing around with things in his head. I wouldn't say the ending is perfect, but it's okay. So that's kind of where I put it in the middle there. And as far as the song's place on the album and it's the last song, I think it's uh, the perfect end to the album. I think this is the most accomplished musical achievement on the album. It's a masterpiece in writing and arrangement. And uh, it is the song, perhaps, uh, that more than any other song stretches the envelope for them. It carries with it so much emotion. It evokes such an incredible atmosphere, even though it's a dark atmosphere. And the lyrics are deep and scary and profound, but also deeply interesting. And uh, they can tell you something. And the song's climax is almost out of this world. So it's, um, it's a song... So unlike any other, so far from really the default way you design a song. Maybe my favorite end of an album that they ever had. I mean, they have some incredible album enders, and in particular Sailor and uh, Just a Shadow. But even songs like Chester Farm and I Could Be Happier, they're, they're decent. And maybe even a, a solid honorable mention to, to Hale and Farewell. It's a very nice end song. But none of these are close to touching Poroman for me. Poroman is so innovative. It's so big country. It, they stretched beyond what they normally do. And it's an epic song, a true big country epic. They didn't make too many epics, sadly. So to me, it's such a song. It's the only place to put a song like that. Any other place for that song would have been wrong. And to put any song after Poorman would have been lessening the impact of both songs also to be honest it's kind of like having a fantastic opening act and a shitty main headliner it needs to be the end and it's a perfect end for the crossing but it's a you know there are songs that could have had it and i haven't forgotten the poll that you put up on uh, on the facebook where you asked people <laughs> which song do you think would be a better ending Man or the song the crossing and i know it's kind of an unfair question to ask because in people's mind Poroman has been the closer for so long and maybe you can't really get an honest answer for people anymore and maybe that is reflected in the responses which as of today is 103 votes for Poroman and 35 votes for The Crossing 
One of which was mine. One of which was yours. And uh, I kind of see why you asked that question. Because as far as ending goes, and that final play out for the crossing, that is a perfect ending. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and, you know, and, and I, it's funny because I came to that conclusion that I would now prefer the crossing ending the album only <laughs> recently, really. I mean, and I love Pearl Man. I love the way it ends. I, I think it's a, it's a different album with Pearl Man ending it than it would be with the crossing ending it. I, I think maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe because there's a little bit more of a triumphant feeling to the song, the crossing that I like better ending the album, the crossing, even though there's still melancholy in the crossing, it's certainly not a happy ending necessarily a happily ever after type of feel to it. But there's just something about that song that I think, I don't know, would, it would have worked maybe a little bit more thematically better to me because the more I've understood Pura Man, the more at odds lyrically to me, it is with, with some of the other songs on the album. But, um, it's just a it's just a fantasy what if type of thing. I still absolutely love the way it ends as it stands with Pearl Man. But um yeah. Yeah, I think the crossing could have been interesting. It's a very hard discussion to have 36 years after the fact. Yeah, it is. And not 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 just for the crossing, but any album scenario, any album you grew up with and after the fact, would this or that have been better? It's like you said, it, on a fantasy level, you can speculate on it, but uh, to actually contemplate rewriting history, I don't know. And then where would Pearl Man go? Because, because even though I think the song The Crossing would have fit beautifully on The Crossing, I don't think Pearl Man would have really fit on the Wonderland EP. No. Like what, you know, because it's too much like off altogether in some respects as far as the mood. Um, so what would have happened to it? I, I certainly wouldn't have wanted to change it at the risk of losing Pearl Man. So it all worked out as it should have, but uh, I just, you know, may, maybe part of it is just because of my, of the sadness that Poro Man has come to inspire in me. This is such a dark song. Yeah. I, I w- would almost prefer something a little bit, you know, more rousing, but uh, it is what it is. Yeah. No, it's a, it's an interesting discussion. Uh, I love these sort of what ifs. They're interesting to to play with. But I, uh, I'm I'm kind of wrapping up my inputs here. I'll I'll mention briefly. Uh, it's worth mentioning that Bruce and Jamie Watson released a song called Pollock and the Poor Man on their Porter Studio Diaries album. Mm. I looked at the lyrics and took a look at it. It doesn't really remind me much of the Poor Man song, but uh, it's worth mentioning. Go check it out if you like. If Tom wants to talk about it, he can talk about it. I'm not going to say more about it. And uh, with that, let's see what you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, jeez, uh, uh, I'm glad you went first because there's a, there's not a whole lot to add, really. But um, for me, for me, the song Pearl Man musically, when I first heard the album, the song was one of my least favorite songs. And and again, I keep saying this over and over and over again, but it doesn't mean I don't like the song. Doesn't mean I don't love the song. For me, the song was a little bit plodding as it began. That that intro to me. It was great. In fact, the the opening, you know, the opening guitar solo guitar part. As soon as I heard that, I was like, "Ooh, this is going to be awesome!" And it and it was awesome. But I guess I was expecting expecting it to hit a little bit quicker. And I know that's the whole beauty of the song, and that it builds the way it builds. But for me, on the album, the song has always been weaker than it is live from a musical standpoint. I I don't know what how to describe it really, but it, there's just something about that song live that to me 
makes it come alive in a way that it doesn't quite come alive for me on the album. Hence, it's going to be a little bit you know, lower on my ranking than, than one might expect. But uh, something about seeing that song done live with the crowd getting into it, the lights, the, the build, it, it always worked so much better for me as that song builds. Whereas on the album, I, I have to admit that I always, from the beginning, it's not really quite so much in, in this day and age for me, but when I heard it in the beginning, I was a little, I was a little bored with it at first. And it's probably because I come from that background of someone who probably prefers the shorter, tighter songs. And most big country epics I, I adore. And this is, this is one of them actually, but Going back to The Crossing, for instance, I would consider that an epic. But for me, that's a more interesting epic musically on an album. I don't know why, but it just holds my attention more. Whereas that intro for, for Pearl Man, as, as great as it is on the album, I don't, I don't know if, if Lily White really captured the power of it as well as it comes across live to me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This is, this is going to have some people throwing hate mail at me, just like with the storm. I'm, look, I'm looking at the public votes right now. I know. I'm sure. I'm sure I'm going to be in the in the. You have many people who are pacing around listening to this, saying, "What? What? I can't believe it." <laughs> well, it's like that. That, like I said, though, that opening guitar part, the chimey little. I think that's so gorgeous. To me, that's like a perfect soundtrack to this idea of someone weaving a magic spell like the pearl man weaving his spell when you hear that you know it's just oh it's so great like if, if there was a, a movie you know with of this you know that would be the perfect music to be playing over the pearl man preparing his revenge with whatever spell he's weaving because it, it's it's got kind of like a sweet feeling to it but it's also got a it's even that little part has got like a sense of menace and when when it kicks in, I mean, those chords are gigantic. They're huge. Uh, I love the chord progression. I, I, it it has this sense of this this wide open landscape that perfectly fits the album. You know, it's it's got a sense of a gigantic storyline, a gigantic journey. It's just it's a larger than life type of song musically. And then when it kicks into the to the big drum part, you know, a lot of people often point to the <laughs> the Phil Collins uh, drum moment in Coming in the Air Tonight or whatever that song is called. It's like the classic drum line for most people, even if they're not that familiar with Phil Collins' work. You know, if you do that, they'll know it. For for big country nerds like us, it's the, that moment in Pearl Man. You know, everybody air drums to that. As Mark kicks into the song and what they used to do live on that song too, which I thought made it even more powerful, was Stuart would follow along, and I think it's on the album version too, but it's it's more pronounced live. Like Stuart would follow along with a staccato rhythmic strumming of the strings with a staccato type strum that sounded almost like a machine gun, and um, it went along so beautifully with the drums, like just like this machine gun unleashing a round of machine gun fire as the drums were playing the same thing. So I love all that, but. It didn't hit me as powerfully as like I was listening to it and thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable! That, how you know what is going on here? This is incredible." I, I got a little bored with it in the beginning. I, I just got to be honest. I wanted the song to kick in more quickly, and 
again, I know that is completely at odds with what the song is trying to do. And I know that, you know, it would be a totally different song if it went that route, but that's just the way that I felt. And so it's always been a little bit, a little bit lower in the, in the rankings for me because of that. I also think there are some production things that I would have liked to have seen done a little bit differently. Like when that guitar part kicks in where it goes to the second half of the song. I, I personally would have loved to have heard that done in a similar way as that guitar break is done in the song The Crossing. There's a there's a distorted bite to that part in The Crossing. And I think it's done, for me, for my tastes, for my personal tastes, it's done a little bit too cleanly in Poro Man, that guitar part. I would have liked to have heard it, heard it um, like, done with that distortion added on it and then just really kick into high gear. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to put into words why it's maybe a notch lower for me musically from an overall vibe than it is for probably a lot of you. The production, to me, it's not quite as crisp and vibrant as some of the other songs to me. And I feel like the music really needs that for me a a little bit more of that vibrancy to really shine through and to make that intro that much more riveting for me still it's it's amazing and there are so many amazing parts in the song and there are so many layers to the song the clean strums mixed with the harder edge guitars i've always loved that aspect of big country and uh, and the drumming is is fantastic, you know, throughout the song. The, the the musicianship throughout the song is fantastic. I will say regarding the ending, I love the ending. I've always loved the ending. In fact, one of one of my only problems with the version that they do play live is that they went away from that ending over the years as they kept playing that song live. It's like they would end it in a different way. They would not go back to that plaintive ending. And they did play it the way that it was played on the album initially, you know, on the Crossing Tour. Something about that moment I love. I just, I, I wouldn't change it. I could see the the idea of getting rid of the pseudo fade out there because I don't know if there's even a point to fading it out when you're going to have a definitive end before the fade out completes. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Plus it starts halfway into that uh, outro. Yeah. It doesn't start at the beginning of it, so it's kind of like it, it feels like a mistake. But of course, it wouldn't have been. That wouldn't have slipped past it. But it's it, it's odd to me. Yeah, and, and I totally get that. And that, if there is something to change about it, that would be it. Um, but just the just the chords and the structure and the suddenly we go into that you know soft major key type of feel. There, there's a comforting feeling almost to that. And and again, with as with everything in this song, it's a dual-edged sword because you could look at it in a sort of disturbing way, whereas the comfort has come with death. With death and a major key. 
Yeah, exactly. Because you love songs ending with major keys like uh, Lost Patrol. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I know. But in, in this one, it works for me because it's not like it's a major key, but it's not like a happy-go-lucky type of sound. It's like a mysterious fantasy-like progression that it ends on. Yeah. And it, to me, it, it works well with the overall feel of the song and the music of the song. And it's, I just I love how it just goes into that quiet bit. I love it that it ends so quietly. And I get the sense of a smile, almost like a smile appearing on the face of someone. Is the hope that is in the story? Yeah, well, yeah. Even even beyond that, you know, just like someone who's at peace. And again, you could look at that in from two different ways. It's like they're dead, so they're at peace, but or they found peace in some other way. But you know, if you want to really go for a crazily optimistic ending, you could think, well, the person has died, but they've they found that there's something else after death and they are at peace. You know, that's, that's not the route I would go, but uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there are different ways you can take it, but I just really like that, that musical interlude as it ends. I always love that as much as I love the way it begins. So, you know, it's, it sounds like I'm ragging on the song. I love Pearl man. I love, I love it, but it's one of those songs that I will listen to less frequently because to me, that build up really requires you to be in a certain mood, ready for that song and sometimes I'm just not and sometimes just like just want to hear something else that's a little more straightforward and concise and that's just my own musical things I'm not a huge prog guy even though I love you know certain epics that Big Country has done I think people who are more into the progressive rock will, will appreciate this a lot more because of that and I respect I respect the hell out of it you know for all, all that it does and tries to do it just doesn't completely work for me as well as some of the other ones do but it's still it's an awesome tune. But yeah, great guitar parts, great great instrumentation, great use of Ebo in the song. In fact, at one point, the Ebo sounds almost like a trumpet in the song. That could be a knock on... Maybe that's like a subconscious thing that's knocked it for me too because I typically hate <laughs> trumpets and brass. But <laughs> it does have a trumpet-like feel, but it also has a feel of like you're going on this... When, when it goes into that point with the Ebo, it, it's like the perfect music for being in this the land of the pearl man this west african safari feel it's just got that feel to it like the guitar strumming and you're getting that ebo melody It's it's really great. It's really great. So, despite what some of the things I might say about how the intro bored me initially, yeah, it's it's an it's an amazing piece of work. It's an amazing achievement. An amazing song, a brave song to put on an album, to have done that song at that point. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It shows how the prowess of Stewart had already developed and was already there and, and not just Stuart, but everyone in the band to be able to contribute so much to that incredible song. But uh, I did want to say one thing, by the way, about Bruce's Pollock and the Pearl Man, because I, I do think it reflects on Stuart. And certainly when you look at the song's interpretation, the way we've been interpreting it, and especially me talking about Stuart's dealings with it, I can see it. And I just want to read the lyrics really briefly. They're not very long. And I think when you look at Pearl Man as possibly being a reflection of Stuart's troubles. Maybe this is speaking to that, but it says, What passing bells for those who die, then holy men through trial, what candles may be held to speed them high, 
like hurricanes from up above leave mother's morning suns and the winter came from flaming winds of fire how wonderful the world is anyway in wiser days the flowers bloomed like lovers kept in tombs beneath the sand the serpent's smile returns but come the time the dead shall rise and walk into the sea on noble steeds the kings of men break line how wonderful the world is anyway the desert burns and clouds are black the ocean floods the land like drunken silence waiting in the wings now he wanders 13 valleys crying out so i think those are gorgeous lyrics from bruce incredibly poetic and it clearly is a song you know referencing stewart so that's the only thing i wanted to say about it is that i think that song does reference stewart adamson and i think even though you know, the ideas of the pearl man aren't really in that song from the H.G. Wells story, I think the fact that he's referencing Stuart and his death and then titling the song Pollock and the Pearl Man, almost putting Stuart into that character of Pollock by doing that in some ways. I think the Pollock and the Pearl Man in, in that lyric might be Stuart from Bruce's perspective. So it's it's just an interesting way to, to look at the song. I've never, I've never spoken with Bruce about it, so I don't know. But uh, I do think there's a connection there. So I think, I think it's really interesting. That's a great way to uh, to wrap it up, probably. Yeah. Right there, great promise. So just confirm to me the ranking that I know what it is by necessity of it being the final one. Yep, this is my number seven. That is wrong, dude. You already spent your seven. Oh, I did? Your number seven is the storm. Oh, well, which one would this be then? Eight. Eight. Okay, yeah, yeah you're right. Sorry. I think, it, I think it was probably a number seven on an, another earlier draft, but... Uh, I say for absolute certainty that this is my number eight. <laughs> no, th this is my number eight. That is good. That is correct. And uh, you should know which one it is of mine, too. Can you guess? I haven't kept track, but it's got to be uh, number one. That was the storm. Number two. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. We both have Storm and Paroman ranked uh, back to back, but in very different areas of the, of the song listing. Those are the two songs for me. They are the, uh, I call them masterpieces. The Storm and Poor Man for me are masterpieces on this album. But I would say the first part of Poor Man, I absolutely adore. Everything before the ha in the middle. And everything after is slightly less. So if the second part had been as good as the first for me with Poor Man, then I would have probably had it as my number one. But they are neck mm -hmm. and neck. And the Storm has always been sort of a personal 
opening the door to the deepest of my heart, and that that it does have a special place. I have to say, Poro Man, it proved itself over the years. It was not my favorite, not because I didn't like it, but because other songs were more immediate and more taking my attention first. But then we had this song that just over time just kept being in the mix and rising and rising, and now it's uh, one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, that's that's great. So, I have our combined votes for the crossing, but I also have the public vote, and what would be the public combined vote? So let's talk about the public vote first. Pearl Man. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that this uh, is everybody's number one, simply because it's number one by a landslide, and it's the last one, and we have revealed everyone else. I can tell you, you stand pretty alone in your eighth <laughs> and uh, beyond. We have zero number 10 votes. We have zero number nine votes and zero number eight votes, except for you. <laughs> well, I want to read, I want to read, after you're done with this, I want to read what the uh, fan rankings of the album <laughs> were in, from the Country Club in 1983. Okay, good. So. Yeah, I was pulling your leg. Of course, there are some people who have lower votes, but I had to give you a moment of panic and isolation. <laughs> First of all, 16 people voted this their number one, which is uh, way above any other song. Two people voted it their number 10. It is not mm. the lowest number. Fields of Fire only had one number 10, but uh, very low other low votes. Like three people had it at number nine and two people at number eight. This is very, very low combined with almost any other song. So the average score is 3.9, way above number two, which was Fields of Fire at 4.4. 4.4, 3.9. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a huge difference when you have 80 votes. It stands alone at number one. It's, uh, it was never really a race for that. It was more a race for the other positions. So, uh, yeah, well done, Poro Man. A lot of prog fans, I guess, in big country land, if that helps. <laughs> and uh, just to have them all in one place, Poro Man was number one. Fields of Fire was number two. The Storm was number three. In a Big Country was number four. Lost Patrol was number five. Inwards is number six. Close Action is number seven. Chance is number eight. Thousand Stars is number nine. And Harvest Home, last with a bullet or with an anchor at number 10. Wow. Poor Andy. He must be fuming right now. He must be fuming. But uh, then we have ours. So uh, I'll start at the bottom and read them upwards like I always do. A lot of these are very, very, very close, but especially the top two are heads and shoulders above all the others. So the last one with us is Lost Patrol at number 10. Mm. Number nine is Chance. Number eight is In a Big Country. Number seven is Harvest Home. Number six is Inwards. Number five is A Thousand Stars. Number four is Fields of Fire. And number three is Poro Man. Mm. Then... A bit above these, I mean, these are all very, very close. The storm at number two is uh, safe, but number one is close action. And that's <laughs> by a landslide for us. And that it helps wow. that you rank that number one, I rank that number three. Uh, we were not that much in sync with all the others. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I, I'm happy that we've given close action some love. Yeah, really. And my number one, two, three actually made it to one, two, three. In close action, the Storm and Poromand. Those are my top three in not quite that order, but still. 
Very cool. Very cool. That's interesting stuff. That's for sure. All kinds of different opinions. That's always the mark to me of a great album. You know, when when the the opinions vary so wildly. Yes. When it's obvious every time, then you know you've probably got a lot of filler on that album, and you can't say anything about these songs, any one of these songs being a filler track. No, not at all. all. So let let me go back real quick to uh, what I promised from the very first episode we did of this deep dive, (laughs) and that is reading you the survey results um, for this album that came out in 1983 in like the third Country Club magazine or third or fourth might have, well, it might have been like the fourth or fifth, but anyway, they they did the same type of thing. Had people rate rank their songs. Yeah, can I just say I fully expect to be vehemently against some of these results, and I don't know what they are, but I'm sure some of them will be. I will be aggressively opposed to them. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of people will be. <laughs> but it, it's it's interesting. It's just interesting to look at it from the perspective of how the album has aged over the years, and not that the poll that we did is some huge scientific thing because this poll got hundreds of entries. But I think I think probably a lot of these same people who voted back then, if they're still with us here today, might vote differently. I know I probably would too, considering what I thought back then. But anyway, I'm going to read the ranking and then I'm just going to read a couple comments that were given about some of the songs, including Pearl Man and some of these other ones. I think it's interesting to read some of these from that time. So number 10 in this poll of Big Country fans in 1983 was Inwards. Number nine, Lost Patrol. Number eight, A Thousand Stars. Number seven, and this is probably why I was saying that I thought I'd rank Pearl Man seven. Number seven is Pearl Man. Number six, Close Action. Number five, Fields of Fire. Number four, Harvest Home. So Andy will be a little more pleased with that. Number three, The Storm, similar to ours. Number two, Chance. And number one, In a Big Country. Huh. Yeah, so Chanson in a Big Country scored really big back then. A couple of the comments that people wrote, they didn't write one for every song, but in a Big Country, someone wrote the Scottish National Anthem, Enough to Raise the Dead. (laughs) Nice. It was pointed out in a couple of letters that this song in particular held a message of hope. Donald Mitchell of Wolverhampton said, Remarkable track. I always find the melody unusual. The band asked the listener to make the effort to get to know the song properly and then find a reward beyond their wildest dreams, a total celebration of love and life. For Chance, it's written, the voting for this track was very erratic. It received more maximum tens than In a Big Country, but was also placed at the bottom of many people's lists because they felt it was out of context to the rest of the album. The remarkable popularity of this number when played live was a key factor for many of those who voted for it favorably. Someone wrote, this was the best single of 1983. It has a beautifully clear sound that shows Steve Lillywhite's production at its finest. Someone else wrote, the song appears to represent a compromise to commerciality. I would have been much happier if it came out as a B-side instead of as a single. So a couple interesting comments for that. Um, Hmm. We get to The Storm, which was the number three. Somebody... Well, the the write-up for that is the storm provoked very emotional comments from some people. It was pointed out by many that this song created images of nature at its most beautiful. A song to fall in love to, someone wrote. (laughs) A very powerful song with good lyrics and brilliant guitar playing. The haunting lyrics, powerful melody, and wonderful tempo create a song that lives up to its name. When I play this song, I can see a remote village in the Scottish Highlands whipped under the lash of violent tempests. A song for the imagination. Interesting. Harvest Home says, another popular choice. Most people expressed their amazement that this wasn't a hit for the band back in 1982. 
With a song like this, Big Country can kick as high as any group in the country. A brilliant Lily White remix has certainly injected life into what was an un unfortunate first single. That's what somebody wrote. Why can't Phonogram re-release the single? It's brilliant. This has a good message. Just as you sow, you shall reap. It should have done a lot better in the charts, but I think it took everyone by surprise. Number five, Martin Warner. Martin Summers at the time, they're writing. Martin was surprised to see this track being placed as low as number five, but that's because it's still his personal favorite. The first time I heard the song, I realized that this was a band with a future. It's still brilliant 10 months on. A song in true big country style, music to move mountains by. An epic, a classic song, a great single. What more can I say? The voting for Fields of Fire was steadier than any of the other songs. Most people placed it in about fifth or sixth position. Absolutely nobody voted for this as their least favorite track. This was the only track to achieve this. Close action. Somebody says, excellent lyrics and a good all-around song was the view put across by most people. Some people regarded it as a very romantic ballad and felt the guitar work served to accentuate the overall mood of tenderness within the song. It has the edge that every classic record should have. Somebody wrote, a record for those who are in love with love. Pearl Man. Some people regarded this as Big Country's answer to Stairway to Heaven. Others regarded it as long, repetitive, and dare I say it, dull. And you cannot blame me for that because I was not a member of Country Club back then. The low placing of the song was was a surprise when one considers that it is, in fact, the band's favorite track. That's interesting to know. Now, who claimed that? Uh, as it being the band's favorite track? That yeah. that was written by whoever was writing The Country Club at the time. Oh, I see. Okay. I thought you were still reading listeners' comments. No, sorry. It's Yeah, it's hard to delineate between when I'm reading the comments. I'll try to be better at that. But this is, this is from, from the uh, Country Club magazine. They say, The low placing of this song was a surprise when one considers that it is, in fact, the band's favorite track. Nevertheless, some people remain unconvinced and voted accordingly. And here's some listener comments. This track requires effort. It goes on for too long and begins to weaken halfway through. The blitz at the end is the only hi highlight of an otherwise mundane effort. However, not everybody felt the same way, and praise was in plentiful supply. Here's some other quotes. Death-defying. <laughs> That's an ironic choice of, of words. Uh. I love the guitars and their enchanting effect on this track. The result is total splendor. The change of rhythm before the end leaves me breathless. The originality and full-bloodedness of Pearl Man conspires to make it the highlight of the LP. And then the last few tr tracks are all summarized in one little paragraph here. It's for Thousand Stars, Lost Patrol, and Inwards. It says, Unfortunately, these three songs were given something of a hammering by a number of fans. Outright condemnations were few and far between, but it was clear that the general consensus of opinion is that A Thousand Stars, Lost Patrol, and Inwards are not nearly as good as the rest of the album. Most fans stated that whilst the three songs were good in their own right, they failed to achieve the standard set by Chance, The Storm, and In a Big Country. Lost Patrol and A Thousand Stars did, however, receive favorable comments from a sizable minority. A Thousand Stars comes over really well, said one person on the LP, with a really loud sound and powerful production, a wonderful set opener. Someone else wrote, Stewart's voice is stretched to the limit on A Thousand Stars, but my God, how well he stretches it. Excellent song. Someone wrote, Lost Patrol is a catchy sing-along number with a thumping drum beat and catchy guitars. I love it. And then the Country Club writes, Inward was, unfortunately, mauled by many people. <laughs> it was placed last on so many people's lists that it, that it eventually became embarrassing. The one good point that was raised by nearly everybody was that they thought the song was great, but unfortunately failed to shine on the LP. Most people touched on the fact that the LP version of the song failed to do justice to what is a brilliant track live. 
And here's a quote. This one lost all my interest completely. It lacks the excitement, fullness, and meaning that the other songs hold so well. A total disappointment, which comes over as being far too tame and lackluster. So that's it. You know, again, you can see so many different opinions on these songs. And uh, I think think Inwards was low on the list for me, as I mentioned, too, when I initially heard the album. And now it's raised way up there. So who knows what time will will change. Uh, That's true. It's still my number 10, but uh, I would never write what they I, I am kinder to it than those comments yeah so yeah there you go now this wasn't as horrible as i thought i my thoughts went back to uh, when you read the similar thing for steel town and they had songs like flame of the west uh, number 10 and some <laughs> yeah. in, insane stuff like that this wasn't that horrible so all right good starting point yeah yeah not bad and i guess we have one more thing to get to and that we is do. the beast with no name <gasps> and he's been waiting as he continues to wait. <laughs> Come on out. You got one last uh, task, and then your fate will be decided. All right, Beast. How many karate barks are in Pearl Man? Crossing karate bark countdown. One. And the answer is one. Yes. A very uh, pronounced one. Yes, a very pronounced one and a, and a powerful one as yeah. well. Yeah, it's probably the most the most visible of all of them. It's kind of like the song transitions with it, and it's uh, it's sort of got a spotlight on it. So seventeen karate barks on the crossing, <gasps> very good showing. Now, what do we do with this beast? You know, he's he served us well for the past half a year as we've <laughs> kept him in confinement. Maybe we can raffle him off. We could maybe uh, we could. Uh, you know, Stuart Mengis can raffle him off on the uh, on the uh, trading post. That would be great if we could put that in a video. <laughs> but you know what? I, I I'm feeling so happy that we have finally completed this the final deep dive of a full length album in the Big Country catalog. That uh, you know, and, and the darkness of the song Pearl Man and all that. I, I, I'm going to let you go, buddy. I'm going to let you go back to your natural habitat, wherever that is probably in a sewer somewhere but uh you're free to go live long and prosper thank you for your service i apologize for all the beatings the, the poor treatment but uh you know uh, have dear. a good life and thank you for your help farewell but certainly not au revoir yes fairly well my horrible beast How do we wrap up a deep dive like The Crossing? I remember when we um, did a drive to Damascus, I felt more exhausted, and but that was only because we did them in much shorter time. Yeah. This has yeah. stretched out, like we started out saying today, I think half a year since we started until we're now doing the final song. It's crazy. I, that, that shocks me. I don't know. Yeah, I'm still exhausted. I, I'm still very exhausted. This, this album... Uh, this album surprised me, uh, and that's good. You know, after all these years listening to something, being, being surprised by things and learning new things and feeling new new ways about an album that you've listened to so much over the years, I'm really glad about that. I mean, it's yeah. the, the album is still very much a vital living thing, and um, it's 
it was our biggest ever. I didn't see that coming. I don't know why, because it, yeah. it's kind of like that episode in Seinfeld where they tell George Costanza just to do everything that he that is the opposite of what he normally would do, and he's successful at it. I should just once I think something, I should just say exactly the opposite of what I expect, and that usually turns out to be the case. <laughs> Maybe so. That's uh, interesting. I, I mean, I was going to ask you about the thing about length because you had a a guess for how long these episodes would be. <laughs> and you guessed 10 to 12 hours. <laughs> what a fool and imbecile I am. Do you think this is our longest album ever? Yeah. And I can remind you that Driving to Damascus was 14 hours, 21 minutes. Oh, yeah. This is our longest ever. <laughs> Especially when you add on today, which is going to be three plus three hours plus. Maybe so. Yeah, you were you were wrong. I wish I could say I was right, but I guess I didn't really guess any. But I, I did guess that it would be longer. I did assume it, but I didn't say it, so I can't take credit. But uh, <laughs> then again, who cares? It's uh, it is what it is. These things yeah. are their own thing. You know, and everything was said with passion, and and you know, I yeah. hope people were interested. It seems like people have been interested. I haven't seen too many people say, "Good lord, you guys are just going way, you know way off track here." But I've seen some. Yeah, there may, maybe been some, and I, and I totally respect that. You know, I know it's a lot to ask to listen to these things, but listen to them in small doses if you can't, you know. Eventually, this will go away, and you'll be able to catch up. <laughs> so yeah. the, Pearl Man, the Pearl Man is coming for this show. <laughs> so. Yeah, probably sooner rather than later. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. We thought we'd tell the albums out. We need to see what else there is to do. Yeah, I know some people were saying, you know, you got to do the crossing, and what about the B-sides? Yeah, I'd love to do all that, but I can't do it. I just it's just too much. I mean, I was I was shocked at how much went into each one of these songs as far it, it, each one was a was a an effort. Yeah. And it should be. And I say that in a good way, but it was a big effort to to do them justice, I think. You know, like really look into the the lyrics and set the historical context for some of them and uh you know, going back like for this one reading a short story and you know, just, there was just so much involved and the, the lyrics to the song "The Crossing." I mean, good lord, that's going to require all kinds of, you know, that, that's that's just not. Uh, there, there's a, there are a ton of there's a ton of depth on the Wonderland EP too, so that's going to have to wait if we ever do it. But yeah. um, and there's tons of great B sides for this album too that we could talk about, and you know, tons of great extra album tracks. But I think it's fitting that we just leave it at the end of the album. We've talked about a lot of those songs in other episodes, and we have. But uh, we are we are now at a point where if we ever want to talk about another song, we know that that discussion will be another episode. Yeah. Maybe not a three-hour episode, but uh, it will be an hour to two, <laughs> and that's that's fine. That's almost back to the roots uh, in, in a way. Yeah. But if if we want to talk about a song, we can talk about a song. That's a freaking episode, people. I know. So maybe that's the way to go. Maybe in the next ten years, you'll get the odd episode about one song. That's right. That's that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Tom Swan, long time no speak. I've just wanted to say hello. I haven't been in touch for a long time. I don't do Facebook anymore because it's a cesspit. But then I miss all my groups. And anyway, I've just come across uh, an update on the Crossing Deep Dive, which I've been saving. And I'm off to Australia on Tuesday, so I've got a huge flight. And I'm very much looking forward to working my way through. Hope you're both well. I literally just heard Swine's 
memory of his grandparents and Harvest Home and it touched me and I thought I've got to say hello so hi guys hope you are and I'm looking forward to catching up on the crossing deep dive speak again soon cheers Hi guys, this is uh, Davey Arno calling from Ayrshire in Scotland. I, uh, my first gig ever was Big Country at the Edinburgh Playhouse and on the Seer Tour in, in March 1986. And that was just after I'd moved from the west of Scotland through to Dunfermline. Um, as a Big Country obsessive at that point, moving to that town was, was, uh, was a fantastic thing. I was 15 years old. And over the next few years, I crossed paths with Stuart and the rest of the guys in the band a, a few times. While my love for the band never never wavered, we did kind of fall out of touch, if you like, um, having bought many as a vinyl, vinyl record and backed them up on cassette like a lot of, a lot of guys have. Um, after the, the Peace in Our Time album, I, I, I kind of stopped listening to Big Country and um, while I went back to the back catalogue now and again, I wasn't quite as obsessed as I, as I used to be. Like everybody else, Stuart's death um, hit his heart, um, and listening to Big Country was difficult, but I discovered the podcast in January this year, and having listened to 76, 77, and now 78 episodes in, uh, in somewhere like uh, eight or nine months, I'm proud to say I'm pretty much obsessed again and fallen right back in love with the music and it's, it's thanks to, to Tom and to Spine. So thank you for reigniting that fire, chaps. The, the podcast is, is wonderful. It makes my two-hour commute to work some days um, entirely palatable and, and very, very enjoyable. So stay alive and thank you very much. Hi Tom, hi Svein, hi to fellow Great Divide podcast listeners. This is Murray. I've got a question regarding a track mentioned by Gary Bushell on the 10th of July 1982 in the Sounds article labelled On the Road and Scared to Dance at the Country Club, which is about a big country gig at the Membership Club. Gary mentions The Crossing, Harvest Home and Heart and Soul. But he also mentions another track, which is Brahma, as in Brahma Bull. Now, was this A, the actual name of the track, which I've not seen any recording anywhere of it, B, is it an actual working title for one of the album tracks, perhaps Poroman or The Storm? Or C, is it a case of someone named the track as Abrahma, which is just Scots for a great track, which I'm sure you'd agree it's easy to call each one of them Abrahma in their own right. Over to you guys. Thanks. We're done with the deep dives. That's that's a pretty amazing milestone. That's a huge milestone. 
And I can tell you that what I will remember most from uh, recording these. Some people will remember it. I'm not sure if you thought that was serious, but I, I, I was ill during uh, the, the storm discussion. Mm. And that was an evening we, um, we did three songs in one go, which was a long session to begin with. Chance, wow. Thousand Stars and The Storm. You started with that one. And I said, from the point you started until the point I was about to start, my temperature increased with uh, just half a degree there. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yes. And, uh, and that was true. And that's kind of one of my favorite big country songs ever. And that was the one I was ill and rambling on. So there you go. Yeah, oh, I thought you did a good job on that one. Yeah, but I was not feeling the best. So that's uh, just a memory I will have. I will sit here rambling, seeing double screens, hearing your voice in the quadruple. <laughs> but it was good in the end. It's good to be done. Uh, yeah. It will actually be a big weight off my shoulders. I, I don't have to add to my 14-page document anymore. I don't have to think of even more things that I should squeeze in. I know. It's great, man. Yeah, the, the, the tube is empty. Ah, it feels so good. It's very cleansing. It's very nice. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not usually a pat myself on the back kind of guy, but uh, I, I will say that I'm just. This isn't me. It's just both of us and just the show and, and all the people that listen out there and everything. I'm just. I'm really proud of all the stuff that we're leaving in perpetuity. These discussions, I think they do the albums and the music justice and show a great bit of. Well, hugely deserving respect and admiration and love for the music, and that's what it's all about. So I'm, I'm really proud that these are going to just exist out there in the ether, and people can hopefully find them down the road, and hopefully more people will come to big country. It's uh, Younger people, I'm sure, will continue to come to big country, and that's happening now, and maybe they'll find these of interest you know, in the years ahead. So that's that's a nice thought to know that it's done and it's all out there. Yeah. And then new info will emerge, and all our stuff will be out of date. Yes, that could happen. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe information will disappear, and we will be the, the ones that, in this episode, it's contained. Who knows? That's true. And when Skynet, when Skynet finally takes over, you know, John's site will be the first to go. <laughs> that is not far from the truth, probably. So then we will have done all this for nothing. Yeah, well. Except for the... the, the hours that people have taken enjoyment or anger or both from listening. I hope that everybody has downloaded these keeping them on a safe spot in their fireproof box. <laughs> uh, yeah. Alright, so that does it for the Crossing Deep Dive. Finally, half a year in the making. I can't believe that. Time goes so fast, but uh, it's done. So, as usual... Please continue the discussion on our Facebook page. If you're not a member, go to Facebook, search for The Great Divide. You do have to like request entry, but it's just because we try to keep the scammers and trolls and telemarketers out of there. Please come and join us. We have great conversations in there, uh, especially when new episodes come out and a lot of new topics to probably talk about with, with this one, even though it's about one song. So um, anyway, send us an email, too, if you feel so inclined, bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. And uh, that's about it for now. We'll be back at some point, but I think a break is in order. So we'll see. Who knows what the future will hold? Yeah, when everybody has listened to everything, nobody's uh, nobody's lagging behind and everybody's caught up, then we'll do another one. Yeah. Yeah, so Anka, once, you're, once Anka is finished, then we'll do another one. Yeah. She will likely be the last one, yes. <laughs> no pressure. Uh, anyway, good thoughts. Learned a lot. So thanks, Fine. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much, Tom. 
and uh, we'll see you next time. Let's do it again in uh, 15 years. Sounds good. Yeah. Bye-bye. And there's a lot to get into. A lot to get into. I hope we can finish today. But I have my doubts. <laughs> no, we are finishing. We are finishing. We got one song. Uh, We're going to finish this damn song. Uh, I don't know. If, well, we'll see. Yeah, we'll finish this song. Jesus. I'll sit there until uh, the morning, talking, wrapping yeah, up. Yeah, I'm just going to cut you off at some point. You can just keep recording. You can just insert your three sentences uh, as it makes sense, and then you're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh man it's a masterpiece masterpiece it's a masterpiece in writing and arrangement peep joey peep peep joey peep did you know that kiss covered Paro man <laughs> no i didn't know that you didn't know that uh-uh well i found uh their cover version of Paro man Oh, I gotta, I gotta hear that. How could I not know that that existed? No, it's, it's very, very, very secret. But uh, I think this secret needs to come out. So yeah, I'll play it for you. All right. Give it all to you. I know. Yeah.